This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi, and his friends Sean and TJ founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the 
products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorn has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorn apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show my good friend Steve Dunleavy. So Steve and I worked together on the Terminator 2 stunt show over 20 years ago in Japan. My path took me into the fire service while still doing stunts part-time. Steve forged his own career in the stunt world, and now he is doing stunt coordination. So we discuss a host of topics, from his journey into stunts, the importance of fitness and diligence in training, mental health, tribe, working with Keanu Reeves on both the Matrix and John Wick series, his supporting role in Spartacus, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Steve Dunleavy. Enjoy. Well, Steve, I want to start by saying, firstly, this is so crazy to even be doing this in the first place. Uh, secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure to be here. I can't believe it's it's taken so long. I can't believe, like, you know, I'm seeing you again. I don't think I've seen you face-to-face in, what, close to 20 years? I think so, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a blast, man. You haven't changed a bit. Yeah, likewise, likewise. I mean, serious. And then I'm interested to follow your journey. And there's a reason. There's a reason behind that as well, as far as you know, commitment to a craft. Um, but for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I am currently sitting in a very rainy, cold Prague. You know, <clears throat> here for. I've been here for a few weeks. Where I'm here for another five months. So 
originally from Sydney, Australia, living based out of Los Angeles these days. And uh, obviously, I spend a lot of my time traveling. Now, we hear of Prague a lot, you know, when it comes to, to films being shot. What is it about Prague or Czechoslovakia that draws so many people in the film industry to shoot there? I mean, it's a great location. Prague itself, the city, is such a dynamic and diverse city. You've got beautiful, like, modern-day buildings. Then you've got that old world. People refer to it as, like, an old Paris, and it does have that charm to it. It's not as crazy as Paris. Like, uh, I was in Paris last year, speaking of traveling, and you can't film on Paris streets. You can't do anything on Paris streets just because it's Paris. It's, it's so big, but... Prague has that old world charm, the buildings. Uh, it's a lot quieter. Uh, it has a dynamic range. I mean, the great thing about working in Europe uh, in a country like Prague, which is so centrally located, you can pull from anywhere. You can get stunt people from the UK. You can get stunt people and film crews from, you know, Paris and Germany. And Germany's just next door. And they have a very extensive, you know, film team there. I just spent the last two years doing movies there. So it, it's it's the best of all worlds in terms of, of of what it has. You know, it has a great studio out here, and that's the first time I'm going to be shooting in it. But it's fantastic so far. Now, tell me about the Czech people. I'm always curious when anyone is traveling or living in different parts of the world. And the reason that I have this curiosity is I have learned through my own travels and then through all these conversations that there are elements of each country that I think the rest of the world could benefit from. And I always refer like Portugal's drug policy and the NHS in the UK. And, and there's always different, you know, systems that work really, really well. What, as, as an Australian and someone who lives in the, the US now, what was your perceptions of any any pros and or cons about the, the Czech Republic? I've, I've only been here for a short amount of time, but the Czech people have been amazingly accommodating. They're wonderful, wonderful people. It's, it is kind of like stepping up back in time. Um, Everyone's super nice and polite. Everyone goes out of their way to to help you, and you know, and you're, you're coming to a country which hasn't is is doing financially well economically, but you know, obviously, like coming from the states and stuff, but people are are so willing to help and so friendly. It's it's fantastic. I don't think there is a guy. I haven't seen a con of being out here yet. Um, other than you know, I can't get big thick American bacon which I love. <laughs> All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So you mentioned Sydney. So yep. let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where exactly you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So I was born um, in Sydney, Australia, uh, a long, long time ago. Um, my parents, my mom is originally Irish. She studied, um, she's from a tiny town in, in Ireland that's um, known for having a reform school. And she decided to become a nurse. She went to the Isle of Man and, and trained uh, to be a nurse in the Isle of Man, which had repercussions down the line because obviously she, the Isle of Man is famous for uh, the Isle of Man TT, and um, which meant that I, wasn't allowed to get a motorcycle. Like even thinking about getting a motorcycle growing up uh, was was not going to happen. Uh, my dad's an accountant. Um, started off as an accountant. Um, everything like that went into insurance work for big banks and and things like that. So naturally, both of them were very risk averse. You know, I I grew up. Although having said that, you know, they 
they kind of, to this day, I don't think they understand what I do, but they never stop supporting me. You know, they, they very much discouraged it, but at the same time, they didn't stop me from doing it. You know, as long as I was being happy and safe and exploring, you know, everything, then, then they were happy to help me. Um, I have one brother, one younger brother. He's 18 months younger than I am. So we were always active kids, you know. We would be out on BMX bikes. And, of course, like growing up in the 80s in Sydney, you could, you know, run around and play with the kids on the street. You didn't have to worry. It's back. It's that older world, you know. And my parents would keep an eye on us, but they also trusted us, you know. And we we trusted them um, and back, and we didn't play up too much. I mean, your kids, you, you're going to do stuff, but you know, we would always go out on bikes around the neighborhood. We'd play cricket, uh, in the backyard until it was dark and come in and do homework and everything like that. I think I had a pretty, I mean, for me, it was a normal, normal childhood. I did, you know, my parents to this day are still together. They're celebrating about somewhere close to 45 years of marriage this year. So pretty insane. So I, I, I call it a normal childhood, but like other people have referred to it kind of as a, a Brady Bunch or, you know, leave it to Beaver, one of those like kind of just happy families. Brilliant. Well, with your your mum being a nurse on the Isle of Man, and so for everyone listening doesn't not familiar with TT, you have these super bikes that race through the actual towns. So they're not on a track. So any kind of wipeout results in someone being splattered against a building. Did she have any stories of, of responding on a, on a medical capacity to any anything that she saw in there? Nothing specific, but she would always tell tales of, you know, like if, if you haven't seen Isle of Man TT footage, jump on YouTube now, press pause, but come back, go to YouTube, like type in Isle of Man TT and look, these guys, guys and girls are doing insane speeds through normal roads and they have um these are all like professional motorcycle raider riders or you know amateur professionals but there is uh i think they call it it's mad friday or something like that where they close down the roads to the general public for cars and everything but they open the racetrack up for the general public so you can be i'm just grabbing my you know kawasaki my ninja or my Hundred Fireblade or whatever, and I'm grabbing my leathers and I'm going out. And I've never done 200 kilometers an hour or you know, 100 miles an hour down a, a, a normal track. And there's, like, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong because there's just, you know, these giant rock walls and, and things like that. So, you know, I heard stories growing up about like, once it goes wrong, like that, there's no runoff, there's no gravel traps or anything like that. It's going horribly, horribly wrong. So, you know, people that are losing legs and crushed hips and pelvises and, and everything like that is like, that's what she's having to respond to and deal with. And then later, you know, as she finished, she went from ER to uh, when she was in Australia and everything like that, working on the rehabilitation side of things. So you'd get football players, you'd have the diverse range of older people coming in for hip replacements or um, you'd have football players coming in for knee replacements and, and issues, or you'd have motorcycle riders. So you would always hear about, you know, people coming in paralyzed or needing, you know, full reconstructions and things like that coming off motorcycles. Cause obviously, you know, there's an element of, of danger there, but that's, that's uh, yeah, that's what I grew up with. Very risk averse parents. So, you know, it was only natural that, you know, I became a stuntman. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, it's an interesting perspective, and it's it's it is an element I think when you're a first responder as well. Where and I've talked about this before, you have to navigate this fine line between all the tragedy you've seen, so the reality of some of these dangers, but also not cuddling your child and making them scared of everything. So a lot of times, you know. The average person's like, yeah, okay, little Johnny, you can go out on your bike. Well, the average firefighter is, yeah, you can go out on your bike in their mind that they're replaying all this horrible shit of children on bikes that we've seen. So it's, uh, it's, I see why she was, uh, you know, trying to discourage you from, from motorbikes having seen so much trauma. Yeah, absolutely. But, but at the same time, you know, we had BMX bikes and we're allowed out on the BMX bike track and we were allowed to do jumps and, you know, allowed to do, you know, kid stuff. I'd, I guess at some point they too they realize too you've got to have a childhood like you've got to do you've got to jump off the hay bales in the barn and like when we visited family and things like that not that we had hay I grew up as a suburban kid so you know uh, but we went camping a lot and you know, did crazy things camping and like rope swings and and all that stuff and got into mischief they they never discourage that they realize that the kids are going to be kids you're going to climb that tree and if you fall out you're going to break your arm or if you get hurt and you're going to learn a lesson, you're either going to learn to climb better or you're not going to climb the tree again. You know, I was always the kid that just went, okay, I've got to learn to climb better. Absolutely. I grew up on a farm. So I think most of the terrifying things that I, I did just weren't witnessed by my parents. So <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have the opportunity to, to realize all the crazy stuff I was doing. Um, all right. Well then speaking of BMX, what kind of sports were you playing when you were a school age? I am. Um, so I played, uh, you know, growing up in Australia and, and then when I was 11 years old, we moved to England. So I did those traditional sports. Um, I played rugby and I played soccer and or football here in America um, or, uh, or sorry, football in England, soccer in the US. Got to get my terminology right. It's, played it's okay. It's football because you use your feet. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, and cute comments in the in the podcast. Um, yeah, played, but uh, you know, so I played all of those. But I was also a really big swimmer, so I was a competitive swimmer from the age of um, from about the age of six. I mean, one of the big things in Australia is swimming pools, and every year you hear about like infant infant deaths of toddlers crawling into pools and and getting over fences or fences being left open and and people falling into those pools and. And obviously, I'm sure as, as there's first responders out there that have probably, you know, gone to that call. Um, my parents were big into, my dad grew up in Bondi. If anyone, you know, everyone knows Bondi Beach. So my dad grew up back then. Back then, back in the day, it was a working class suburb, you know. Um, but now it's obviously, it's it's a lot nicer. So the first thing they did was, they wanted, I could swim before I could walk. You know, my brother and I were in, in swimming lessons and we'd go down to the beach and learn about rips and, and currents and tides and everything like that. And they made very sure very early on that, that we could swim. So I naturally kind of gravitated towards that, that and rugby being like, you know, I was always the bigger kid. I'm six, three, two twenty five now, but I was always taller than everyone. So again, I kind of got pushed towards those more physical sports, played rugby. And then that, uh, the age of 15. Uh, but again, I kind of shot up. And one of the, it's interesting, like looking at the sport and thinking back, we never got told to stretch. Like we never stretched. We never warmed up properly or anything like that. And I'm sure it's changed in kids' sports now. I mean, if when I have kids, it's going to be something I'm looking at because 
I grew up super tight hamstrings, super tight muscles and everything like that. So at the age of 15, playing rugby competitively uh, at school, I um, I fractured my spine, lost, uh, ruptured the disc between L4 and L5, uh, fractured my L4, and uh, lost the use of my left leg for because of the, the pressure on the spinal column and everything like that. So I was... I was in a uh, playing rugby in a lineup. My guys lifted me up. They protected me from the bottom, and some guys came over the top. And that force of just twisting, just I just felt it felt like someone stabbed a knife in my back. And all of a sudden, my left leg wasn't working properly. No, and came crawling off the field. And it was a competitive. Like I went to the school I went to was a, a private boys' school growing up, and it was very competitive sport school. The the team we were playing was was super competitive against us. So I kind of got looked at as a quitter, like I was faking it. And I could I had problems breathing and kind of crawled off the field. Uh, because just I wanted to stay on, but my leg just wasn't working. So that was uh six months. I was misdiagnosed once. Um I was kind of told that it was nothing. And then they they saw the fracture and the rupture because it wasn't looked at properly. Um and which did a little more damage in there. And then eventually they realized what it was. And I was in a kind of like a half body cast from my arm under my armpits to down to my hips for six months. Oh my God. So what, yeah. what was the, what was the mental journey like for you? Cause I mean, that's something that we see in, in a lot of the people that are listening, you know, we get hurt on the job and you were this super able physical um, responder. And now you're laid out in the bed with a back injury but for a young boy, you take your physicality for granted as well. So what was that physical journey like for you? But also what was the mental health element to it? Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. Oh, and I was I've been I think about that. Obviously, you know, I get friends with back injuries and, and things like at fifteen, you're still you still think you're invincible. Um, there was an element of me that just went, Oh, hang on. I like what did I I'm not invincible or I could be invincible, but obviously there's an issue there. Um, I looked at it as a way to improve. Um, obviously, being 15 and over a summer, especially in summer, where you've got this body cast on, and you want you want nothing to do but to go outside, and you can't run. I literally for a couple of months just had to lay there, you know, basically lay in front of the TV, would you know, then get to bed and go to bed and get up play in front of the TV and do my rehabilitation exercises and, and things like that. And then when I started to do rehab, my mindset was always that I was going to come back stronger. And at 15, we weren't lifting weights or anything like that as part of our training, but I started researching about, about fitness and about health and okay. Like talking to physios, like I, this happened basically because my hamstrings, I mean, I would stand up at 15 and I'm pretty, I was pretty much the height I am now, like six, three. Uh, and I couldn't touch my knees. So bending over, like my hamstrings were so tight, I couldn't touch my knees. And I, no one had explained to me. I just, as a kid, I just thought, oh, okay, I've got long legs. That's why. Like other kids can touch their toes because they're shorter than me. It must be because of that. Like nothing about stretching or about flexibility or or anything, which I think is very important to learn. Um, and obviously strength. So I came back with a mindset that, uh, I was going to come back stronger and, and fitter and, you know, and there would be nothing wrong with me. So with that, what what 
exercises did you start adding in? Because I, I had a back injury. It's been about, I think, eight years now. And, uh, you know, did Cairo, did PT, but actually there's a thing called foundation training that I used that absolutely was the game changer. And my mindset was the same. All right, why did I get hurt? Let me fix that. And then alongside, hopefully the pain will will be reduced. And it did. And, you know, it just like the other day, it was still at 48, deadlifting 225 for reps in a CrossFit workout, carefully, you know, very, very mindfully. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. we're talking like 21 without you know, putting the bar down. And it's not like a, wow, that's amazing. But it's, wow, that's amazing for someone who thought they were going to end their career with a back injury. So what what did you put in that you weren't doing pre-injury at 15 um, to not only rehab the injury, but as you said, get stronger? Yeah, so I had... um obviously like went to the physio and had the physio explain to me, I'm like, realized they're like, Oh, you're super inflexible. And I'm like, well, it's cause I'm tall. And they're like, no, 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 it's just, you're, you just don't stretch. I'm like, okay, so show me, what have I got to do? And I would get up at, um, before school, I'd get up an hour and a half as part of my physio training and stretch. And I would, you know, the house is dark and obviously like I'm 15 and I'm in there stretching, like to the point, like I would, push myself to the point of tears every morning trying to stretch trying to get my hamstrings and trying to get my hamstring longer trying to get my like quads loosened up because naturally i'm just very inflexible i've got short hamstrings and um did that and then when i was able to i started to learn about you know lifting and different types of lifting and strength-based training and um started we had a gym was very lucky the school we went to had a very nice weights equipment and the rowers were all on weights programs so we had you know a a pt coach there a strength and conditioning coach uh was was very good so i just went to him and was like hey i want to do this i've got you know these problems and and everything like that what what should i do and he started me on a program and i was kind of skeptical at first i wanted to you know obviously there's that lingering lingering thought i didn't think that I was, uh, I thought I was invincible, but there was still that little niggling thought of like, well, what if I do something wrong? You know, um, so started off, started off slow with, you know, didn't really get into the deadlifts or squats straight away. That was something that came later on and just slowly built myself up like 45 degree leg press, you know, all the, all the meathead kind of, I'm going to the gym to, you know, hit bench press, hit, um, hit back, hit legs on the 45 degree and, you know, throw in some bicep curls. That That's how my progression started at school. Um, and then got back into the swimming side of things. So I played, I switched from rugby and everything like that, played water polo, got back into that, which is great for physical strength and fitness and obviously took a lot of pressure off the back. It was a lot of fun. Brilliant. Well, you talked about being taught to swim when you were very young. Just before I forget this kind of point, I know that as you progress through your stunt career, you got very, you know, familiar with the weapons training side and you know, martial arts. But it's something that you never hear people talk about when it's the whole, you know, sheepdog in your community philosophy is swimming, you know. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you might be able to take down someone who's, you know, attacking their their wife or whatever it is, you know, and then do that physicality. But I think it's so important for us to put swimming into that equation too. Firstly, obviously to lower the amount of victims, but secondly, if you truly are a first responder, then you need to add swimming to your repertoire as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you were talking about you you were talking about CrossFit uh a few minutes ago and and you mentioned about the like the 225 for 21 reps and and you were saying, you know, it's like 
for a start, like I, that's what people forget about CrossFit. It's not you're not competing against everyone else. You're competing against yourself, and it's what it's what's good for you. You know, everyone's coming in with their own story and own injuries. Uh, that I think that's important for people. Like obviously, there's a lot of people that do CrossFit to, to listen to this podcast because. We'll talk about it in a minute, but in a minute, but I did, I tore muscles in my spine deadlifting on a CrossFit workout on a hero wad, which is, you know, me being a meathead again. Um, but swimming is definitely important. And you saw that in the CrossFit game several years ago when they added swimming for the first time. And here's all these super athletes. And all of a sudden it's like, you're almost having a rescue. It looked like you were going to have to rescue these guys. No one knew how to swim, which I thought was very clever to add in. Uh, it is one of those overlooked. It's not so much overlooked in Australia, uh, I don't think, because it's one of those everyone. We're obviously an island nation, and most people, just the geography of Australia, most people live around the coast, you know, the east coast in particular, um, and we're all used to kind of going to the beach. So it's it's very important knowing about, and you see it a lot. You get a lot of tourists that come to Australia. Our beaches are pretty brutal. Like being able to read where rips and currents are and things like that. And you get people that just get washed out and don't understand how brutal Mother Nature is. And, you know, you look at, at Florida right now and how much is underwater, places that aren't normally underwater, that all of a sudden, you know, you may have to jump in and rescue someone from from a flooded road or a flooded car or something like that. There are – it's one more element you need, not just for fitness, for, you know, low-impact fitness – but also just to have in your, your box of tricks if you did need to jump in the water because you never know when you're going to need it. I guess is the, the biggest thing. You never know when that day is going to come where you're on holiday or something like that and all of a sudden you're going to have to jump in the water and save someone or rescue someone or help with a rescue. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because the, the lifeguards that I've had on the show – you know, I, I like I guarded for quite a bit when I was a bit younger, um, and I forgot that w they're all held to an annual standard or biannual standard as far as their fitness and their training. But ironically, in police and fire around the world, most are not held to any any you know standard worth a damn. So the men and women that actually do jump in the water for a living understand the value of their own physical fitness but sadly that same element has been lost in the first responder you know, not every agency but a lot of them yeah it's super it, it's very interesting like the level of of training and everything like that obviously there's that there was a whole you know going back to 2020 and everything like that it was uh there was the whole defund the police and things like that which i think is completely the upended attitude like coming from obviously once I got into the career I'm in and things like that, once I got away from school, I started towards my path in martial arts, whether it was boxing, Muay Thai. Um, what else have I done? Wing Chun Kung Fu uh, and then uh, Filipino martial arts and then Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu um, over the last 10 years. And you see the applications for this type of training, both from you realize how fit you need to be like cardiovascular wise and also strength wise from a Brazilian jiu-jitsu perspective, but also how it helps you control someone like from a fitness level, like as a first responder or something like that. Um, if you know you're fit, if you know you can handle yourself physically to control someone, um, it yes, I think in yourself, you're more controlled, more calm. There's a de-escalation there. Whereas, you know, so many first responders aren't given the opportunity to train like that. 
you know, there's no, I mean, I'm not a police officer, but from my understanding of talking to the instructors that do train police and, and train military people and everything like that, um, they're just not given those opportunities unless they search for them. You know, there's very few departments out there which do. And I think people, if, if, you know, there were better fitness standards and there were better training standards, there would, there would be a lot less situations. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think it's, it's the, the bilateral conversation. Of course, there's ownership. You know, you can, as mm-hmm. a responder, go seek out a gym, seek out a jujitsu uh, place, but to, you know, to vouch for a lot of these responders, especially at the moment, they're, you know, underslept, overworked. And I know I've been there, you know, your, your internal motivation starts to drop when you're just, just so damn tired and you start adding body weight and mental health changes. So we got to have this conversation that, yeah, you need to, you need to weed out the people that should never be in the uniform in the first place, but we need to create an environment that gives them the rest and recovery that we need but also that then as you said gives them access to good defensive tactics and good strength and conditioning and the other elements that will make us as as optimal as possible when someone's having their worst day absolutely yeah all right well with your career journey when you were at that school age were you dreaming of stunts or was there something else in your mind no you know what i i kind of like I always thought I'd be a pilot. I always had this fascination with um, with jets and wanted to join the Air Force. And I did apply for the Air Force. I applied uh, when I was eighteen. In Australia, they have um, like uh, an academy that you go to, which is um, uh, it's it's run, I believe, by the University of New South Wales, or it was back then. But it's off. It's basically a university where it's uh, Air Force, Navy, and the Army. And you go and you're, you're already in one of those branches, but all of them are together. And I, it, it's a brilliant idea, I think, because it helps like all those people that are coming up through those college programs, they're going to branch off into those services, but then they have those interconnected relationships already. So it helps with interdepartmental um, cooperation and, and help and things like that. So I applied for this school. Unfortunately, my eyesight wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough to be a pilot. Uh, they offered me kind of a ground unit or something like that, but I, you know, I'd seen Top Gun growing up. I watched that movie. My brother and I had watched that on on VHS until the VHS blew out, and I, I was just dead set on being a pilot. So, but that wasn't that wasn't for me. And then I applied to the army, and uh, because I had fractured my spine a few years before, they were just like, "Yeah, this isn't. You're never gonna have the career you want to have." So, um, sorry about that. So, you know, it'd be like I could have joined, but I would have ended up writing a desk my whole life, being stuck behind a desk, which is not what I want. I knew I was capable of more and I knew I wanted to do more. Um, so I, I looked for other stuff. And, you know, when I was, I'd always been acting as a kid. I'd always like wanted to, you know, jump into plays and just, you know, play, get to play stupid characters and, you know, do, do fun stuff. Um, and also going to boys' schools. It was a way to meet girls because the plays were always done with, you know, the, the, the live shows were always done with the girls schools. They would play the girls roles. So going to a boys school, it was the best way to meet girls. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if I delve down into it, that that's kind of what got me on the road to, you know, to acting. So I started acting and and everything like that and um, started taking acting classes and, and things like that. I wasn't, I was in college and was, um, 
looking for a summer job and things like that. What got me down the road to stunts was I was do I applied for an acting role at Fox Studios in in Sydney. They had opened up this backlot experience like Universal or or anything like that, and. Uh, I got the role and I was on Titanic, the experience, which is just like, let's make a, let's make a, sh- uh, a, a theme park ride about a ship that sinks and thousands of people dying. When you look back at it, it's like, okay, choices, but obviously Jim Cameron's, <laughs> you know, show had just <laughs> movie had just come out. And if I ever hear my heart will go on one more time, because that's, you know, what was played there. Uh, I, I will, I will cry myself to sleep. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so then I met a couple of stunt guys from there. Um, they would came in to teach some of the, the street theater guys uh, to do, you know, to do pratfalls. And, and I saw these guys doing what they were doing. And I was like, well, I was like driving cars fast and, and everything like that. And rally, going to rally school to learn to rally drive. And I was doing martial arts. I'd already started doing uh, Taekwondo and boxing. Or like all these kind of things are, are right up my alley. This is what I want to do. And that kind of took started my path to to get in towards the stun industry. So was the next thing after that Japan? It was, yeah. So I did that for I worked at Fox for a year and then this audition came up for Universal Studios Japan. Uh, and I'd only been kind of doing stunts in Australia. You've got to be licensed. So in the U.S., you don't. In the U.S., you don't have to be licensed to be a stunt per- person, professional. Uh, in the U.K., you do. They have quite an extreme grading procedure. Uh, and then the Australian system modeled itself off the U.K., making it slightly easier. So I was working my way through getting my Australian license to be a stunt person when this audition came up for Universal Studios. So I went there. And was looking at these guys and there was like some crazy good martial artists, guys doing big kicks and everything like that. And I'm like, well, you know, I've kind of only been at this for a year. I'll give it a go. And I'll, if anything, I'll come away with the experience and I'll learn kind of where I have to get my training and it'll be a good experience. And I'll walk away. And then if it comes up, I'll audition next year. And we did, we auditioned all day and I kept making it through these rounds. Like we did the first round and I think we were just, it was basically based on look or, or, or a basic movement. We had to do some shoulder rolls and some mini tramp stuff and everything like that, a pratfall, and made it through that round. I was like, okay. And there were some some really good people cut. Um, and and then each round was just a little bit more. It was like some acting. It was some fighting and things like that and just kept getting kept getting called back. And at the end of the day, they just they walked up to me and went, hey, we're short on Terminators. Uh, we, I would obviously like, I was one of the bigger guys there. Like, would you like to come to Japan? Like, and, and offer straight away. And the amount of money they were offering for a kid that was like still in college. I was like, sure. <laughs> I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be like a situation where I was like, I'm, I'm going to regret this if I don't take it. It's a year. I can postpone college. can always come back, but it's a year in Japan. You know, it's going to be a great experience and I'll regret it if I don't do it. So I signed up there and then, and a couple of months later, found myself uh, in Osaka, Japan. So, within that, um, in the audition, was that was Damien present at that one, or was it a different one? Because I was there when no, Damien I, was there. Yeah, um, Damien. No, I think was that up in Queen. Did you do the Australian auditions? Yeah, I did. did it, I did it yeah. in Sydney. Oh, you did? Yeah. So I, but okay. I think there was several days. So I don't know if it was the same day, but Damien was there. I think Alex was there too. 
Russian Alex. Yeah, Alex would have been there because Damien, I think Damien was at Australia's Wonderland or something at the time. I think he was doing, like there was a, there was a bunch of guys there from, uh, was, uh, action, the action man show. There was another, there were two theme parks in Sydney at the time. There was Fox and there was, uh, Australia's Wonderland. They were doing like an action man show or something like that. And Damien was probably, we must have been there on the same day. Probably. Man, yeah. I, there was only one audition in Sydney and that was the day. I don't even remember you. Yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm the gray man. Very few people remember this. Well, I have a podcast. So you don't see my face as well. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, no, but I remember because we did the same thing and, but I didn't get an offer straight away. So I was waiting by the phone for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then, and then they, uh, they offered me T1000. So yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. So when we got to Japan and we obviously started working, we we're on the same cast at one point. Um, what I noticed over the next year, you, I was there 15 months, was there were people that went there and just partied, no, you know, each to their own. And there were people that were, that didn't party and saved all their money and bought a house in Canada, which, you know, is the other side of this, the, the, the spectrum. But you were one of the few people that I saw that through that year was still clearly trying to make themselves better. And so you and I would be working out together. I remember you had your case of myoplex that you'd always bring in with you. <laughs> <laughs> so again, myoplex. talk to me, talk to me about that mindset because there was, let's just pull it out of the shadows. There was some snobbery as far as what kind of stunt person you were. And there was some that would look down their nose on other people and there were some that were very new to it. I was new to it. You were new to it. But mm -hmm. when I look now, you continue to be very, very successful and you, know, you put the work in. So what was your mindset that year when we were doing um, Terminator in, in, in Japan to allow you to get up and train and be diligent when the pull was to go do our shows and then, and then go get food and drink? You know what? I, I, I've been asked that before. I, I don't exactly know where it is. There's this little voice in my, in my head. That's like, don't be average. Like they get up and do it. You know, it's that same voice that like, I still get up at four 30 in the morning um, and go to the gym um, and it's cold and it's wet. And it, but it's just like, you, you can sleep in, but you're not going to. Um, but don't get me wrong. Like when we first got there in Japan, I was, I was 22 at the time. So you know, I'm still a young kid and all of a sudden I'm where we were living in, like, let's set it up for everyone. It was, there was what it was. There was, I think it was a 20 story. Was it 20? It was 18 story building. And there was 10 apartments per, per floor. So 180 rooms. And it was all USJ like employees. It would, everyone was from what, like America or Australia, pretty much predominantly America and Australia. There was a few Russians there. There was a few British that snuck in. Obviously, just um, one. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all, that's all they let. That was their quota. <laughs> that would they, they got one, and everyone was aged between eighteen and kind of thirty. Was you know your, your age group, and everyone's getting paid. No one has to study. It was like the college experience that I saw in American movies that I never got in Australia. So the first three months was there was partying. There was you know a lot of. There was a lot of late nights because that's like the Terminator show wasn't that hard to learn. Like we nailed it pretty quickly. And the rest of the time was just, we were going out partying late at night. And I remember I, I got up one morning and I, I looked in the mirror and I was just like, what are you doing? Like you're, you're getting out of shape. Cause I've always, I've always had abs 
like I've worked hard for it, but you know, I've always been lean and, and, and worked hard to get abs and things like that. Cause I've always kind of had it being an athlete and I couldn't see my, like turning point for me was, let's be the vain part of it. I couldn't see my abs. And I was just like, Whoa, like, come on. Okay. You've had your fun, everything like that. Now it's like, you're, you're paid to do a job. Let's go and do that job. Like you're representing for me, I was representing the Terminator. I was Arnold Schwarzenegger up on stage. So, Hey, like, let's be professional about this. I'm a professional. It's my job to improve myself every day. So let's get, let's get going. So I did, there was a good three months there where it was, you know, all fun and games. And then it was just, let's get down to business. Like my job is to improve myself and everyone around me. Like we were dealing with like the American stunt guys that had more experienced guys that were in the industry 10, 20 years that I could pick from. So I just, realized the opportunity that I'd been given and went, well, if I'm going to be serious about this and I want to make it a profession, then I've got to, my attitude has to be, this isn't a party. This is something I have to improve at every day. This is something where I learn something new every day. And I push myself every day. I don't live in my comfort zone. You know, I, I want to push my comfort zone every day. Brilliant. Yeah. Cause I mean, that was the thing, like you said, it was a college experience. I was an athlete in college, so I didn't have the party experience. I was doing Taekwondo. I was fighting for my school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got to Japan, I was like, Oh, okay. This is what they were talking about. But it was the same thing. It got old after a while and it was dangerous because we were so well paid. You had the funds to go eat out all the time and go drinking and all that. But uh, for me, it was, it was, you know, okay, how can I improve? And there were some bad things. Like I smoked for a short time in Japan which uh mm-hmm. which is insane because i'd never smoked in my life but i don't know if you remember the ymca the um yeah. the gym would have you know the the cafe next to it and you could smoke in the cafe and there was no partition between the cafe and, and the gym so you're everywhere you expose <laughs> yeah. a cigarette so so that was detrimental i made myself worse but i also went to to muay thai in japan training a, a japanese kickboxing gym and we worked out but yeah, it's it, but it reminds me again of the fire services. Once you get in, you've done all your training, you get through your probation, you can either just put your gear on the rig and just kind of, you know, skirt, sk- uh, what's the right word? Just kind of, you know, go through the day as it were, or you can take that time to actually make yourself a little bit better, a little bit better, even though, as I said before, Sometimes the environment is set up against that and you don't want to train. You don't want to, you know, go take something off the rig. So I think it's, it's an important parallel that you had the opportunity to basically just part your ass off for a year, but you had that kind of hard stop after you realized that it was starting to be detrimental. Yeah. And we saw it. We saw people that just kept partying and, you know, had fun and they did their year and then they went home. And um, for me, I, I decided that I guess that... I don't know, something in me that just says, like, if you're going to do something, you commit to it. You do it 100%. Um, like, I can't, I, I try not, to, oh, well, I can't half-ass anything. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm doing it, I'm committed to it, then this is, you know, I'm going to be the best I can be at it. And that was part of it. It's like, I'm going to get into the gym every morning and, and get up and train and learn new things, whether it was high back then, you know, I was, I was getting into stunts, so... It was high falls. It was trampoline. But we had those people there. I sought out those people that had the more experience. I was like, hey, teach me this. Teach me this. What does it mean to be doing this? I saw guys that would breeze through shows or like better fighters. And I would grab them and be like, what what do I need to work on? You know, there's always something you can be working on. There's always something, you know, and 
it helps you get to know people as well. You know, you might look at people um, like that you're working with and, and, and not like them or not know them or anything like that, but you, you see that they're doing something you might want to learn. And I had to get over myself, like being 22 and obviously going, I've got this cool job and, you know, I'm, I'm great. But you get over that and it's like, well, I don't know that. You know, a lot of people I find that are afraid to ask or to admit once we get to a certain age as adults, like, well, I can do anything. Like, I'm not going to admit that I don't know that. And you see it a lot in, in the stunt industry because obviously there's a lot of ego and things like that. But I had to learn to be like, hey, I don't know how to do this. Show me. You know, none of us are, are born knowing everything. We all have to learn stuff. We learn to walk and we get up and we fall down. And, you know, as kids, we, as babies, we just go, oh, okay, I'll get up again. We don't cry about it. We don't throw, well, kids cry and throw tantrums, but, you know, it's because they get hurt. It's like when you're, when you're learning to walk, you just got to let that frustration go. As an adult, it becomes frustrating to not know something and to learn something new. Um, and there's always something new to learn, especially in my industry. And, and I guess like with, there's always, you know, for you guys, there's always new equipment as first responders. There's always some new technique or something like that. It's very easy to get complacent in your ways and just go, well, this is the way we've done it. But, you know, expanding your knowledge and not sitting on your laurels or, or taking that easy road. Yeah, that's why I love these conversations with people outside my profession because it's amazing the parallels. And here we are and talking about the stunt industry now, and you're you're you know saying the words that need to be heard. I mean, you really are. One of the coolest things that we did while we were over there, in my opinion, was training with Captain Dale Dye, who was actually on on the show, and Julia was too. Oh, so, awesome! So, talk to me about you know your perspective of the boot camp that he put us through, and and also, did you ever work with him again after that? You know, I loved that, but that was talk about an eye-opening experience. And and as a kid, like coming from like Australia, and I didn't know anyone in the industry. I I, I didn't. My parents, like I was saying, my dad is an accountant that went into finance and and, and insurance. My mom's a nurse, but I didn't know anyone in the industry. And I always like was like when I wanted to do acting and things like that, I was I was like, how do I how do I do this? How do I break into the industry? And then went into stunts, and all of a sudden I'm in Japan and. We're meeting like Captain Dale Die and Captain Dale Die had just, you know, he had done Starship Troopers, which is something we watched on repeat, you know, over in Japan to begin with and things like that. I'm like, this is a guy that's in the industry. Like this is, this is the closest to a famous person I've met, but just his knowledge, obviously his boot camp was, was an amazing eye-opening experience it, in team building. Just like we were a group of kids from, all over the world that had never worked together or had never and, and never functioned together. And all of a sudden, like we were, we were expected to spend the next year as a team. And we all came from different backgrounds. We all came from different experiences, but you're, you're trusting this multi-million dollar show to people with an age range between 18. And I think it was like what, 25, or I think maybe Johnny was like 30 at the time. I think the eldest was probably 30. Um, that's like so predominantly like most of us were young 20s that's it's a multi-million dollar show and you're trusting the whole performance to someone in their 20s and over the course of that week we went from not knowing each other at all to like having like 20 years later we're, we're still talking and i still keep up with like, there's a lot of people from that show that we're still friends with just because of that one one week of bonding that that extreme pressure that it put us under and 
we had to learn to trust each other and bond together very quickly, which was amazing. You know, it, was, uh, it still sticks out in my head as as one of the most amazing experiences I've done. And it wasn't even like a full cat and die boot camp, you know, talking like listening to his experiences and stuff I've done since, but it was, it was, it was amazing. Now, did you ever work with him after that? I haven't, I've never worked with Captain Die. It's one of my, I've never ended up on a, on a show with him or, uh, or Julia, unfortunately. It's just something I haven't had a chance to do again. So I just had uh, Shane Taylor on the show about a month ago now, and he was the medic in Band of Brothers. So I got to hear, mm-hmm. you know, the the actor's perspective from that. And it was interesting because I'm blanking on his name, but the guy that played Ross in Friends, who was their kind of um, training officer in that, you know, the portrayal of the real story. Um, David Schwimmer. David Schwimmer. So supposedly yeah. he had an injury, so it kept him away from the rest of the group for a while. And he was such trying to figure out if it was real or not. I'm like, I guarantee you it probably wasn't real. It was to, to create that animosity between, between him and the rest of you that are bonded. So it was really interesting to hear, having been through a, a mini boot camp with Dale, to hear Shane's experience for that show. Yeah. It was actually amazing like, because there were a couple of people that couldn't make the boot camp. Um, and it was interesting when they came into the group because it was a different dynamic. It was like, oh, you're kind of like, breaking our bubble here we've all got this we've all had this amazing experience and you weren't kind of part of it um but you know now we've got to filter you into the team and there was this because we obviously been together for such a short intense time at the at the time that it just it felt like outsiders breaking into the group even though we ourselves had only known each other for about two weeks but all of a sudden there's these other people coming in that hadn't done the boot camp and just like well hey who are you guys like what you haven't earned that earn the right to be here i mean it was you know but it's still it's it set up it's it just it was a testament to the atmosphere that that captain die created that that he allowed us to be a part of to to experience and bring us together for that boot camp and it was i think it worked like years later i was i was still texting him and emailing him about you know things that were going on in t2 because i ended up spending i did two years as the terminator and then another two years as uh as the sheriff of Wild West, like transferred shows. Brilliant. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, my, my character, the, I mean, we had a motorcycle helmet and glasses, so it just took him about, what, 15 months to figure out, hey, why are we paying <laughs> Americans and Australians like three times the money? So they put Japanese in our, our uh, show, and rightly so. I think it was, it was great and it employed local Osaka, you know, stump people. But, um, so that was the end of our, our little career, um, as far as there. So you do the four years in USJ. When mm-hmm. when I came back, and obviously I was wearing it to Michelle back then, you know, it's it's a real like screeching halt again when you go from such amazing. I mean, we opened that that theme park, you know, so we were there from ground zero, and then you get all this per diem, per diem, and your tax free, you know, pay and all that stuff, and then you come back to the real world, and it smacks you square in the face. So, what was your transition like from USJ to trying to find your feet in you know the 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 film side of the stunt industry? Yeah, so I, I mean, I left, I got to Japan when I was 22 and I only had the idea of doing it for a year. And then I was dating a girl when our contracts came up and I was like, I'll stay again. Um, and then I was going home again and then I was dating a girl and a different girl. And it was like, oh, I'll, I'll stay. You know, it's a different show and I'll stay. And so I left at 22, came back at 26. And, you know, at 22, it's kind of like, oh, the world is, 
like from me men- mentally, I was like, well, the world, I can do anything. Like I'll give this stunt thing a shot for a couple of years and have fun. And I get back to Australia at 26 and it's like, well, hey, am I serious about this because you know i don't have that option to go back to college at the moment like do i want to go back to college and, and finish my my degree I, I was doing a degree in economics and marketing with a minor in, in middle eastern politics and like at the time when i left my degree it was before 9 11 um so the middle eastern politics wasn't they're actually shutting down the middle eastern politics section at, at my school because of lack of interest obviously that that changed um and i was like do i it's just something that I do. And obviously in Australia, you've got to be licensed. So I had to make a commitment. Um, and I got back and, and we were treated, we were treated pretty well in Japan. Like we could get into like, <laughs> like we, we worked in a theme park, but you flash your universal studios, like pass and you're getting into nightclubs, like your VIP and, and everything like that. Not that I did. I very quickly got out of that kind of like going out scene for me. It was just about work and, and things like that. Um, and there was a whole other thing there. I mean, I got I got bad food poisoning, which gave me a whole other set of stomach issues that and things like that. So dealing with like you know food allergies and things like in, in Japan was was interesting. But coming back to Australia, um, and obviously my parents were very risk averse. So my dad was one of those guys. He was like, "So what are you doing now? So you had your fun. What are you doing now?" Um, and obviously, like he just had my best interest at heart. You know, there are very few having a career in the film industry is limited. There's, you know, there's not that many people that are fortunate enough to be able to do it or to live, you know, like live their dream, I guess. Um, so there was some, some hard questions. I ended up getting a day job working for, I always knew even going back to when I was a kid, I turned around to my dad one day and said, I can't do what you do. I can't work in an office. Like even I would think I was six or seven years old. So I looked around and I ended up getting a job at uh, Bridge Climb on taking people up Sydney Harbour Bridge, and kind of just devoted myself to to my stunt train to stunt training. Uh, decided that's what I wanted to do. I really I didn't know what else I wanted to do, and I still wanted to make like I'd done live shows, which was amazing background. Like live shows, I, there are people in this industry in the stunt industry that look down on live shows, but live shows give you discipline. You're doing exactly the same job every day day in day out same thing you've got to have the same energy it's a different audience every day and there's 800 people in that audience they're still paying their money so if my mindset was like they've got to do they've got to get the same show every day no matter how i felt so it taught you to you know show up to you're saying the same dialogue even the same marks so it, it teaches discipline you know because if you get it wrong you're getting it wrong and someone can get injured and when you're doing that much repetition obviously you know, there is a greater ability for something to go wrong. Um, and you, it, it teaches you that internal and mental discipline, um, which you need for this industry. Um, so I set about getting my, uh, my, my stunt uh, certification in Australia. In Australia, you've got to do, well, back when I did it, someone's going to turn around in the comments and say, well, that's not how you do it anymore. When Back when I did it, uh, there were you had to get four or five areas. The first one was vehicle control. So you had to get your certification. You had to have two licenses. You had, there's either your car, your truck, or your motorcycle license, and you had to have advanced driver training in at least one of those. So I did my car stuff. I was you know doing rallying, things like that. And then the second one is body control. So you have to have at least a year's experience in a martial art 
Um, I think in the UK, you have to have a black belt in a martial art. Um, and then there's also things like high diving and, you know, gymnastics and things like that. So you had to have one of those areas. And for me, I was doing Taekwondo and boxing. So had that covered. Uh, and then it's water. Um, so I was a scuba diver. I'd been scuba diving since I was about 18 years old, uh, and was certified up to like just paddy rescue diver. Um, so continued on with that. And then you have heights. So whether you're rock climbing or abseiling, you had to have a certification in that. And you also had to have your rigorous certification. So in Australia, that's working with cranes and, and doing steel and, and things like that. Uh, and then the fifth one is animals. And I cannot ride a horse to save my life. So I wasn't going to touch that one. You know? like, and I get on a, a horse and the horse is like, yeah, no, this isn't going to work. And the horse is doing one thing and I'm trying to do another, which, you know, didn't do too well. The first big movie I did was the movie Australia uh, with Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman and everything like that. And I was the stunt liaison. I was just like a junior stunt guy. So they put me with the horse team to help the horse team because all the horse guys didn't know knew nothing really about film. So I was helping them out with a premise that I would ride and learn to ride. And it quickly became apparent that really I just, I wasn't the guy that was going to ride or, you know, be an expert horse rider or anything like that. But what a, that was an amazing experience. That was, that told me a lot. I'll just, know? I'll just grab my scuba gear. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. That was my nickname. My nickname on that show to this day, the guys in the horse department would still refer to me as Scuba Steve. <laughs> <laughs> that was from an Adam Sandler film, wasn't it? It is, yeah. Scooby Steve. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So when I was young, because I, I wanted to be a stuntman when I was a kid, and then growing up on a mm-hmm. farm in England, I'm like, well, that's never going to happen. It's ironic that, you know, let the universe do its thing. You never know where it's going to take you. But um, yeah, the stunt registry in the UK, as you touched on, was crazy. It was, you had to have black belts and be, you know, I mean, like high level gymnast and high diver. And I mean, the, the number of things, I mean, you'd be 50 before you got them all. So I don't know if they've changed it now, but I've still got the old book that I had and it was insane. And it was basically to keep most people <laughs> out of the stunt industry so they could protect the James Bond films and the other work that they had over there. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason they do it. The reason in like in Australia, uh, at the late seventies or early eighties, there was an accident on set where basically a, a coordinator um, had brought in a friend to do a, a car gag and the car ended up plowing through the camera crew and killing people and things like that. So at that point um, they turned around and went, okay, we've got to make this industry legitimate. We've got to give it some level of training. Um, and it does weed out those people that just, you know, shouldn't be there. There's a, there's an element of, of control and snobbery there as well, where it's like, oh, well, you know, cause it is like, you, you can tick the boxes, but you can't, you know, there, part of that is you also need to know, you also need to get to know the, you have to have a stunt coordinator and a stunt actor in Australia. So in Australia, let me backtrack here for a sec. It goes trainee to uh SAP stunt action person to uh stunt actor um, to uh, stunt actor, to I think assistant coordinator now, to coordinator. So you've got to work your way up and each level has a certain amount of progress. So you've got to get a stunt coordinator and a stunt actor to sign off on you for that, for the training you're doing and everything. And it gives people a chance to assess you as well. You know, uh, you're, you've got to train with stunties and things like that. So word of mouth, the industry small, word of mouth, you know, is there. And if you're just not that type of personality, um, then it's a way to weed people out or or get to work out who's who. I mean, you know, that's what it used to be like these days. If you tick the boxes, you're getting in. 
Um, there's a little less stompery there and there's a little less, you know, like, well, he's cool. No, he's not cool. You know, that kind of thing. Um, Cause now living in America, there's something, there's something to say about just anyone being able to get in, but having come from Australia where I was known and I was working all the time to then changing my life and, and moving to America where I wasn't really known and having to wade my way through that level that sits at the bottom that are, are occasional stunties or there were a barista yesterday um, and decided to be a stuntman tomorrow. There, there's a level of that where you're having to wade through that. So, and now it's coordinating in, in the U S I understand you've got to be very, you've got to be so careful about who you bring on your team, right? Because you have, you're trusting these people one with actors. And if an actor get hurt, gets hurt, it shuts down a show or, um, you're also trusting them to be able to do quite dangerous things and, and walk out of it alive. You know, if you're doing a high fall or a fire burn or a car stunt, you're having to trust these people and knowing that there's an element of training there that at least there's a base is, is quite a good thing. I had uh, Olivia Jackson on the show. She was a British stunt woman who was on Resident Evil and basically was almost killed. And it was actually the, mm -hmm. the boom operator for the camera that she was barreling towards on a bike. And it's supposed to swoop up when it gets close to her. And it didn't. And she ended up crashing into it. She lost uh, her arm. I mean, she actually didn't lose her arm. It tore everything in her arm, including her nerves. And she ended up making the decision to cut the arm off because it was just, you know, it was just hanging there. Um, so, you know, and obviously more recent events we've heard about some of the tragedies that can happen on a film set, especially on the stunt side. So, with you know, wherever you want to go with this, talk to me about the dangers in, in the stunt industry and, and where that lack of professionalism and ownership can actually cost a life. There is. I mean, Olivia's a friend of mine. We did Mad Max together, you know. So, I, you know, I that was 2012. It was only a couple of years after that that... Um, that that incident happened. I saw Olivia a couple of years ago. I was in London doing Hobson Shaw. Uh, and we, we sat down and uh, she came to London and we had coffee together, her and her husband. Um, that There's always that crazy thought in your head. Stunts is one of the only jobs on a film set, probably the only job where there's a possibility you're not going home, like at the end of the day, um, or like you're going to hospital because of something. Um, and that's something that weighs on me. Like now that I've become, a, now that I'm coordinating and things like that, that weighs on me quite heavily because you're asking people to do something um, with, with a, a level, like there's an element there that something could go wrong. There, That's why that's why we're stunt people. There's always that element. There's a reason we don't get actors to do it. There's a reason we're highly trained. Um, and the industry's come a long way. Back in the day, it was the early stunt guys you see a lot of them, like people are limping. There's fingers missing or, or legs missing. There's prosthetic limbs and things like that. They're the guys that paved the way for us. You know, it was originally the cowboys, like guys that were just ranchers and cowboys that came in to do the the cowboy movies. And it was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if someone fell off that? Okay, we don't know how we're going to do it. But hey, Jim, like jump off that building and we'll, we'll put some hay down. You know, these days it's a lot more scientific. Um, and it's gone from being kind of the daredevil aspect to to more of a science. Stunt people these days are athletes, like highly, highly skilled, highly trained athletes. I have the privilege of working with the 8711 team a lot. And those guys from very young ages became masters of martial arts and body control. 
Um, so when we're looking at a stunt these days, we're looking at it from several aspects. Um, Z, you know, we have to do risk assessments and risk reports. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, first responders are used to having to deal with those. And obviously there's a high level of insurance involved. Um, in, a, in the US, there's not as much paperwork. In Australia, we, they do uh, or what used to be like what they call the SWIMS, the safe, weapon, uh, safe work method statement, uh, which is, you know, can be anywhere up to, you know, 30 pages long where you've got, you have to diagnose what the stun is, what the risks are. If we're working at heights, are we working with cars? Are, they, are those cars moving? Are they stationary? Are we working with water? What temperature is the water? You know, uh, if we're working outside on a location, what what what's the outside temperatures ranging from? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Are we putting up shelters? Have we got cooling tents? Have we got heating tents? All of these factors have to play into. So um, it's not just about doing something cool on camera. It's about having to make something if, if you're doing something once it's an accident if you can only do it once it's an accident you have to be able to do it repetitive times because you know i'm sure what most people realize is we do multiple takes of these it's not just someone falling off a car onto the ground once it's okay we've got it from that camera but the sofa the focus was soft so it, the image doesn't look sharp so we're going to go again so jump off that again okay we got that from the that camera we're going to do it from this camera now you know you you might have to do i did um and we were prepping for a movie and over the course of three days, I got hit by a car 30 times. So, you know, um, I mean, there's always an element of you do something like that repetitively. The body's not meant to get hit by a car. I'm going to walk away bruised, obviously, and I'm going to walk away like a little bit tweaked. But, you know, I there were pads there and we the pad technology has come such a long way with like G-form pads and um, non-Newtonian fluids and things like that that harden on impact. Uh, so that that's allowed us to technology outside the industry has allowed us to be a lot safer. And then the way we approach stunts from physics, like we know exactly most of the time, if the car is coming in at this speed and it's this type of car with these kind of brakes and these type of wheels, we're carrying this much momentum with us. It's going to stop in this distance. This person is going to get hit by the car at this point. It's going to land exactly here because we need to know where we've got to put the the cameras and things like that to get the shot. Um, or if we're throwing a car through the air, it's going to land exactly here. Yeah. 99% of the time, it all goes right. Um, it's when we're working with like the, the hardest stunts I've ever done is when you're working with other elements. Obviously when you talked to, you, you touched on Olivia's accident and that was, that was the boom operator. You're relying on other elements like special effects, obviously stunts and special effects because explosions happen cars have to flip and turn that's all the special effects department when you're incorporating another department there's a whole other level of of trust that you have to have um and that's where it gets hard you know when you're knowing that your guys are physically capable of doing something um obviously 8711 um expendables 2 uh where there was a special effects tech that hit the button at the wrong time and there was an explosion underwater that was meant to go off next to a boat it went off when the boat was on top of it and it tore that boat apart and it killed one of the stunt performers on the boat and another one. Um, uh, another one was really badly injured. He's a very successful stunt guy now, but it took him years and years to recover and he's part of the, that 8711 team. Um, you know, and I saw that firsthand. You know, a friend in Australia that was on uh, another movie and there was a mistimed car gag and he had to have his head out the window and as the car swerved there was another car on top of them and he got hit and he's living with like permanent brain damage 
Um, so the science behind what we do has to be, and the the um, the planning has to be completely on. That's where accidents happen. When things are rushed, when things get changed at the last minute, which which things do, um, that's when things go wrong. And that's why we've, we've got to have those those scenarios and, and those backups in place. Yeah, well, again, so many parallels between, I mean, I say what you do, what we do, because I still do it, um, and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the fire service side as well. And I think that that's the thing. And you, you hit the nail on the head as far as that diligence with the live shows. And I'm still doing live shows today. You know, you mm-hmm. every single time you go through, like you said, you've got to have that same mindset. And I see some of the guys, and we saw it, you know, when we worked in, in Japan as well where you do it for so long you start cutting corners or you start goofing off on stage and then that's when people get hurt so having that yeah. diligence in, in the fire service you might have run that call a thousand times you might have pulled over you know on that freeway a thousand times but you know it doesn't mean that the thousand and one isn't going to get you in trouble if you're not staying on your toes yeah. yeah and it goes back to training as well because when something does go wrong the more mentally fit you are and i think the more the more you are in tune with yourself like there are guys like i've seen things go wrong things things do go wrong but there's a reason we choose the athletes we do because the guys like at 87 the, the top tier guys are always training so when something does go wrong in the air they can adjust it. i've seen guys do crazy things adjusting their body to land where they need to land i've seen people have to like all of a sudden like change their body weight to go left instead of right because something was going wrong or jump or avoid a car or like a mistimed explosion. Like when you were talking about continued training and, and setting standards, the top tier guys always keep themselves just out of their comfort zone training wise because it's it keeps them sharp, it keeps them alert. It, they're but they know that they can physically do beyond their skill. Like you never want to for us, we never want to exceed beyond our skill level because that's obviously when things go wrong. You know, um, you always want to have you need that. 20 10 20 percent safety margin that you're excelling above in training what you can do on 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 set because when something does go wrong you need to call on that 10 20 percent whether it's reflexes or um you know strength or or whatever it is having that extra uh, extra 10 20 percent in the bank is, is what keeps you alive yeah, absolutely i think that's the problem you know with with a lot of the mindsets if you are i mean we, we I talk about this all the time. We call our certification in the fire service in America minimum standards. So it is labeled perfectly. This is the shittiest you should ever be physically, skills-wise, everything. Um, But, you know, there's sadly a lot of uh, box checking when it comes to some of the training versus training for the worst case scenario in your city. So I've protected theme parks, I've protected high rises, I've protected all kinds of places where I'm going to have to carry load, you know, 28 stories up or you know half a mile across or whatever it is um and so that's what you need to be training for like you said you can control that on the training ground and i love the way that you, you talk about that in the real world it might be 80 percent of that um but the more you push those margins out the bigger you know the, the skill set that you create and the strength conditioning capacity that you have the higher chance there is you're going to save yourself or someone else in the real world yeah yeah it's it's I think it's, it definitely comes down to that. Like for us, it's about, you know, obviously we go into controlled, well, they're meant to be in controlled environments. It's, it's calling on that when 
it, it's not controlled and like, you know, going into an uncontrolled environment is a completely different thing. You know, you guys are, are constantly being called into completely unknowns, whether, you know, it's a car broken down on a highway and you don't know about the, the drunken driver that's, you know, two miles down the road that's coming straight for you or that propane tank that's, you know, you don't know is is hidden under that bench where the fire is or, or whatever it is. And, and when things go bad, you know, in life, things go bad. It's, you know, like there are, there are guys that, that we use in the industry and like, like you were saying, they're great just average guys. You know, when things are all good on set and everything like that, I can get you to throw a punch and fall down. Cool. You're going to get used for that. But when things are, when that scale is amped up, uh, you're not going to get the call because you're, you're at minimum standards. And there's kind of a minimum standard for us too. It's, it's an unofficial minimum standard in the US and everything like that. You've got to have, you know, certain skill sets. But it's the guys that get, get the work go, okay, how can I be better today? What's my, you know, how do I push myself out of my comfort zone? You know, what is, if that's the minimum standard, then what's the best I can be? You know, if it's, if it's, I'm, I have to drag one body, well, how about dragging two bodies? How about dragging two bodies and a backpack? With you know, full of gear or, or something like that. Like, what if two of my buddies go down, or what if I have to do this? Or it's always, you know, there's there's always somewhere you can push those limits without in being reasonable too. Of course, like you know, it's the body takes its toll, especially like this. Like we are athletes, and I'm you know in my forties now, and I've been doing this for over twenty years. So the ground gets a little harder to hit every uh every year every birthday yes it does because <laughs> i get thrown a lot in, in the show i do now i'm a punch bag for jason Bourne. um all right well then walk me through that kind of you know immersion into the stunt industry to spartacus because i mean I'd, correct me if i'm wrong but it seemed like that was not only a big role from a stunt point of view but also you're an actual fe featured actor in that that production I was. I walked in as a, just another stunt guy. So uh, Al Poppleton, the New Zealand stunt coordinator, fantastic uh, stunt coordinator. I'd worked with him on one of the Narnia, Narnia the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in, uh, up in Queensland. Uh, and, and a year later, he gives me a call. He's like, hey, we've got this show on Spartacus. And and I knew that, you know, I'd seen the show. And he's like, you want to come out? And they, they were killing so many stunt people. There's only so many, like, stunt New Zealand has an amazing stunt team and they're fantastic. I, I love those guys and girls, but there's only so many of them. And on, if anyone remembers Spartacus or has seen it, the TV series on stars network, they kill a lot of people on that show. Like a lot of people died. So they were having to bring in people from like different countries and things like that to prop up, you know, just so it was a different base. So you're not seeing the same five guys from these poor New Zealand guys getting killed every week. Um, so I came out on that show and I was meant to be there for, I was meant to do a three episode run about eight weeks. Uh, and that was just an amazing, that was, that was, that opened up a level of like Al had done a lot of international shows and things like that. That really opened up the the level of professionalism. Like there was a full gym. I worked into uh, the house of pain. There's a big poster and it's like, welcome to that, like Spartacus house of pain. And it was this big astroturfed area. It was this concrete. We'd get in there at eight o'clock in the morning and we would do first up was a one hour uh, circuit training. It was just, and it was actors. It didn't care. You were all equal, like actors, stump people, obviously like for those, those people that don't know the industry, there's a little bit of a hierarchy, obviously like, you know, your actors and, and things like that, stump people and kind of different levels, but it didn't matter. You're all on that same level. 
and you just had to survive. You just had to knuckle down and survive. And Al can put on uh, a circuit. He can put it. It was the house of pain for a reason. Like you were, there were people throwing up and, and things like that uh, in a good way. Uh, and we did that. And then it was, you know, you get into your stunt side of training, flips, falls, rolls. And then we would start getting into the fight choreography and we would do, you know, fight training with the actors and teaching them how to punch and swing swords and the different weapons we had to use. And then we would get into doing all the choreography for the shows. We were doing the equivalent of about a movie's worth of fights per episode. So you were shooting an episode and you had those fights in your head. You were doing pickups and second unit for the previous episode and you were showing the actors the the coming episode of this and it was so it was you were constantly on a, i think it's some of the fittest i've been on that show um and started off as just another stunt guy and then a role came up for um it was an interesting time because obviously like i came in on the second season what was the second season um and the first season andy was the lead actor um and i'd actually worked with i i didn't get to work with andy on, on spartacus um but I did get to work with him on another movie, Gabriel. I was a, I was an Australian film where he played the Archangel Gabriel. Um, I got to play. I got to work with him briefly on that, which is he was an amazing guy, like really fun, everything like that. And then uh, the season I worked on was Liam's first, so he, he had big shoes to fill, and he did a he did a fantastic job. Liam's a, an amazing guy, you know, to work with and, and big shoes to fill. Um, but yeah, that. Came in and all of a sudden I went from just being another actor to like, hey, they want you to audition for this role. This, you know, there's this character coming in and everything like that. Um, so auditioned for it, a couple of people, couple of us auditioned for it, and then kind of nothing was said. And it was just like, okay, I guess I'm going home and everything like that. And uh, then about a week before I was meant to go home, I got this call. Hey, can you just go in for some makeup tests? They just want to run some tests on what this character is going to look like and everything like that. I went in and I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and then came back out. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, so yeah. So next week um, you're, you're not going to do that role you've been rehearsing for. You're going to, because we need you as, as this character. And I'm like, oh, I, did I get it? Because no one, because it was that <laughs> weird world. Like I was in the, like production thought stunts was going to tell me and stunts thought production was going to tell me. And uh, yeah, I just kind of slipped through the cracks and everyone forgot to tell me that I was actually going to play this role. So I thought I was going home and I ended up spending another like five months in, in New Zealand, which is, you know, where I met my wife. So if I'd never got that role, I would never have met my wife because she was an actress on the show too. That's amazing. Well, you talked yeah. about Andy. So Andy died from, is it non- Hodgkin's Not lymphoma, Hodgkinson. I think, and he, yep. he was a Welsh actor. Um, and mm -hmm. then when I was Googling, because I'm like, oh, I remember that you did lose someone. There was another guy, Ewan John King, that you lost too. So what impact did that, that have on, on you know, again, you talk about a family when you when you work on a show for long enough, you do bond. Mm. I mean, what what was the impact of, of those deaths on on the cast? So Andy, I, I still remember it. We were shooting episode seven of... Um, um, of Spartacus that season. And, um, we came in on Monday morning and we didn't know at the time that any passed away on the, on the Sunday night. Um, and we, where we had, so basically like they would, we were in a big warehouse, the, the studio space that we were taking up so much space. We were in a, like a big warehouse. So the stunt area was attached to like one warehouse and they were filming in another warehouse. And they made the announcement on set that Andy had passed away. And 
everyone just went saw the producer were just like we're gonna shut down for a few hours and everyone just and it is a family like you're living it's it's hot i guess you know like people that like work in like first responders and stuff you're working with people so close-knit all the time like we you come to work it's not like obviously in office um we have to trust each other we have to do all these crazy things together on a film set and it becomes like you're doing 18 hour days like 12 to 18 hour days every day with these people and they become your family you're you're in these weird scenarios with people and and you're once you you have to fight someone or do anything like there's this there's this level of trust because you're both trusting each other that you know you don't get injured um you couldn't find a corner that someone wasn't like crying in you know it the place just there was it was it was shock it was just complete like an utter devastation everyone no one knew what to say everyone knew that he was sick but like obviously um but they were hoping that you know something there was a miracle or something that he was just going to get through it and go into remission and and be well um now obviously that wasn't the case uh but it just it devastated everyone it, it changed the mood too there was there was new there was some newer cast members there there was obviously like a lot of old cast members that had done the first season and they you could just tell no one wanted to be there like every the it's kind of like people had taken the magic away on that day um people rallied and came back and and everything like that but it was there was definitely a dynamic change within the cast just to lose something like that and andy had basically taken the show because you never know with the show as well like um, so much of that show, the show was called Spartacus and the whole first season, they, they weren't sure if it was going to be a success or not. Um, and Annie made it a success, a success. Um, and then all of a sudden he, he wasn't there, which is kind of like just, just heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that family element, you know, we, we've lost people from Universal, quite, quite a few people. I mean, we lost, um, yeah. Brad, you know, to suicide. We mm-hmm. lost Grant. We lost um, Didi in that horrendous, you know, explosion in our home. And yeah. it, I mean, each one of those, and even you know, we shared nine eleven together too. So the emotional yeah. element of these families that are built, whether it's in a you know a live theme park in in Japan or whether it's a movie set, again does parallel the family element of a of a healthy firehouse. Mm. Yeah, it's you know what you mentioned, Grant. I actually saw Grant in in Vegas. It was one of those moments where it was like, it was one of those crazy ones where it was like we were actually doing a thing for Spartacus, and they and Grant was working in on uh, he was like looking after one of the clubs, or and I saw this guy at the door, and I'm like, got in one of the casinos as we're as we're being led up, um, and I'm like, Grant, and you know, we we briefly said words, and I'm like, hey, I'll come back. I'll come back and say hi and we'll catch up everything like that and um i didn't get to you know like we were being grabbed and pulled around everywhere and i never got back um to see him um and i was that's a moment that always sticks with me too it's like hey you gotta take those opportunities and just slow everything like nothing's worth it like like that you've just got to take like nothing i was doing was that important that i couldn't have stopped for an extra five minutes and and chatted to him and caught up with an old friend um and just reached out and just seen how he was or anything like that but you know at the time i was so caught up in what was was going on that i 
I was like, I'll, I'll see him again. It's easy. You know, I'll, I'll catch up with him again. We'll, you know, and, and then he was gone, you know? So, uh, it was an important reminder for me to just, to take those moments, to take those opportunities, to, to never take anything for granted like that. Just to, to take those moments when you see someone or just take that extra time to, to reach out to someone and say, Hey, see how they're doing and, and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, there's, as you know, there's this real mental health crisis going on internationally and things, especially in the more developed countries. And I use that term loosely. Um, but yeah, I'm actually ended up seeing Grant in California when I lived over there in LA for a bit. And I forget how it even happened, but he was working in the studio. He had a gym for a bit and I actually went and, and chatted to him. So yeah, I mean, you think about the mental health element behind, you know, the, some of the deaths that we've had. I mean, it's it's horrendous. Now, what what about that in the stunt world? So many of the professions, when you pull back the curtain, there you know there is an element of of um, trauma behind the facade of we're all doing great. What have you uh, ex- exhibited, whether in the stunt world or in the movie profession, um, as far as the kind of mental health element that seems to be affecting so many people, no matter what their profession is. Yeah, I think. I mean, there's this expectation. There seems to be this thing that, like, you know, everyone that works in the, working in the film industry is great, and it's all about, you know, the glitz and glamour. It's not, you know, like there's there's very few people that get to walk their red carpet, or you know, obviously A-list actors and things like that. The reality is that 99% of the crew that work on a film are are doing like minimum 12-hour days. A lot of it is 16 to 18-hour days. Um, where there's a lack of sleep. There's a lot of pressure. There's not, we're obviously not, we're not saving the world and we're not, you know, curing cancer or anything like that, but there's a lot of money at stake. Um, like a lot of money at stake and you're only as good as your last movie. So there's always that drive to be some, to be cooler and bigger and badder and, you know, crazier than, than the last show. Um, and that pressure to, more and more is that there, there's less time to do more. So we're always trying to cram in more to a day. We're always trying to do something with less rehearsal or, or less time. Uh, and that puts a lot of pressure on people. Uh, obviously, you know, they say people get into acting because either life's too hard or life's too easy. And there's a lot of interesting people and creative people that are drawn to this industry, which doesn't always lead to the stablest of mental health situations um and there are people like that uh in in my side of things those people kind of get weeded out they don't last a long time um the other thing too obviously like with with stunts it's there's it's it's a macho kind of industry it's it's always been a macho kind of industry and um i think what's great about the younger generation coming through there's more there, there has been more talk about it used to be just like you sucked it up and you grin and bear it and you're getting slammed around or uh, you're getting yelled at or, or things like that. Like a lot of the, lot of the stump uh, coordinators out there are still yellers. Some of the old school guys are just yellers. They, there's no, there's a lack of management skills. You literally go from being in this industry, like being a stunt guy to, you know, if you're a good enough stunt guy and you hang around for long enough, then and you get to know your schmooze, the, the producers and things like that, then you're coordinating. There's no, there's no training. Like all of a sudden you're in charge of people. So for a lot of people, there is no management skills. There was no, there is none of that. And obviously with a high level of stress, 
stress without training leads to like yelling, people getting frustrated, people getting angry, people yelling. And, you know, there was, there's like high levels of alcohol use in the industry and, and things like that. But more and more so, I think people are becoming aware and like, again, going back to that athlete thing, people are becoming aware that their physical health and their mental health are just as important. So there is a, there is a push to be more aware. And I know like for myself, as I coordinate, I'm, I've been through that. So I've, I can, I, I can see my guys and I, I read, I, you know, again, going back to being the best person you can be, I, read as much as I can on, you know, when I started to move towards the management side, I, I got books on management. Um, I, I started reading about management styles and management skills and, and the do's and don'ts and, and how to talk to subordinates or how to talk to your team and, and how to build a team. And it's realizing when someone, especially in this industry, like people don't always reach out. Sometimes you've got to subtly reach out to them or put someone in their path that allows them to talk. Because otherwise, like there would be, there has been a lot of people that we've lost in this industry or have walked away from the industry because of the pressures that have, um, that they've fallen into alcoholism or drug use and things like that. And they just kind of get discarded. And once you fall off that train, it's, you know, no one's looking back. Yeah, it's it's crazy again the parallels. It really is, and I think that's what the underlying message of a lot of these these are human issues. It doesn't matter what uniform you wear or what you know, your paycheck says. A lot of these things are shared experiences. You made an interesting point about the screamers because I'm sure a lot of people listening can see that fire lieutenant, that um, academy instructor, and I've seen him too. You know, usually a little little obese, bright red face. <laughs> <laughs> buttons around their waist hanging on for dear life screaming at cadets or screaming at probies with that lens that you have now talk to me about some of the traits of the bad coordinators that you've seen and, and maybe the reasons behind that and versus some of the mentors that you've mirrored yourself on yeah i mean i mean you know like you're saying everyone everyone's seen that bad guy that just it's not being able to, for me, like my perspective and the way I look at it, looking at people now, it's it's a it's not being able to deal with the stress of the situation. It's a lack of training. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of preparedness that um, puts these people into situations where they feel like they have to yell at people to get things done. I mean, I the greatest coordinators I've worked with have always been calm and communicative. No matter what the pressure is, though, one of the first coordinators I worked with, um, everything was going wrong. And he was just calm, you know. And I asked him, like, what would, like, what would his philosophy was? And obviously, like, you know, being a firefighter, throwing fuel onto a fire doesn't do anything. Well, I don't know. Someone's going to correct me and be like, well, that actually blows out, you know, it does this and that. But generally, adding, like, adding gasoline to a fire just, creates a bigger fire. So if you're, if things are going to hell and you're yelling, you're just adding to that storm. He's like, you've got to, he always pitches himself. And, and I do too. Now I picture myself as the eye of that storm. Like the storm can rage around you, but you've got to be that calm in the center. You just got to physically picture yourself as that unmoving, like, you know, calm in, in the, in that, in that storm. Um, and that allows you to, 
you know, take a breath, breathe, look around, assess the situation, and then make a call on, you know, going back to like one of my Navy SEAL buddies who was, you know, talking about his experience in, in military situations. Because obviously those guys, like, I mean, one of the benefits of, of my job is I get to work with some crazy cool amount of people and you know we get exposed to like a lot of navy seals and things like that talking to them about their situations and, and being in firefights and still having to make staying calm under pressure and still having to make those calls but a lot of it comes down to you know what they're talking about their training they can't train for a lot of the scenario they they train for so many scenarios you can never say exactly what's going to happen on the battlefield um but they train for so many scenarios and they train so intently that when those scenarios pop up they can rely on that training. And I think, you know, in a lot of industries and things like that, it's, it's a lack of training and a lot of, a lot of uh, lack of fundamental building blocks, that foundation that people are resting their, their, their training on that allow the causes screamers and yellers and, and people who shouldn't be in those situations to, you know, you rise to your level of incompetence. And those people are stuck in those levels because that's that they hit their, they hit their ceiling and, yeah, they're just yelling at people. <laughs> I don't know. Does any of that make sense? No, it does. And like I said, trust me, there's, there's many faces flashing through my head when you're talking about that, good and bad. You know, the mentors. I mean, one of my, my favorite firefighters is my truck captain in Anaheim. And no matter what was going on, we had this raging, raging pallet fire that was next to a tree clearing business. So they had like, I mean, I, I forget how big, like 50 plus feet of pallets over, you know, like a whole, I mean, just a massive, massive stack. And then next to it was a probably a 20 foot tall wood chip pile and all these rigs. And, and this, again, you talk about chaos. He just took a step back and was like, huh, everyone else went through this one way. He found a way we cut, cut a fence, drove the fire engine around this lake, got in the back, ended up rescuing a crew that was trapped. And then, you know, being strategically placed to start putting the fire out. Well, start putting the fire out. It raged for hours. But but again, I witnessed that, you know, cool under pressure. And that was because he'd always trained diligently. I mean, he was close to retirement when I worked with him and we still worked out together. We still cooked together. I mean, it was, it was I think he probably did the things the same way on probation that he did 30 years later, you know. So, yeah, it's, yeah. there's so much relevance to what you said. Now, I want to kind of hit on one more area before we go to some closing questions. Um, I had Spencer Thomas on the show, who's um, John Cena's stunt double. And yep. John is one of the actors that, unless I'm just having, you know, smoke and mirrors and I'm just, you know, totally bought into the world's biggest lie, it appears that John's a very, very good human being and does a lot of great things with his platform. And those are the kind of people, as you know, that I love. When mm -hmm. I think of that kind of person, Tom Hardy works with Reorg, the Royal Marine Charity in um, in the UK, seems like another great mm -hmm. human. And another person who seems to keep it on a down low, but I hear it over and over again, is Keanu Reeves. So talk to me, and it doesn't have to be about any of those people I just mentioned, but talk to me about some of the actors that you've worked with that aren't prima donnas, but conversely are actually great human beings, you know, because we don't really get to, to learn too much about the real person. We, we see the facade on television. Yeah. No, I think there's, I mean, there's a great misconception, obviously, like tabloids and clickbait headlines. There are, you're reading about the same actors, like you're reading about, and I think what, what people forget is that, like, actors are human too. Um, and they have their good days and their bad days. The unfortunate thing, like, we've all had bad days where we've yelled at someone or, you know, done something stupid. The problem is, if you've got 
you know, 10 paparazzi following you around with a car and cameras and things like that, they're going to capture that moment and it's going to be all over a paper because, you know, in Australia we have the tall poppy syndrome. The tallest poppy gets its head cut off. So anything that rises above the pack kind of like in, in Australia, there's that mentality of just like, well, you, you can't rise above the pack. Everything's got to be brought down. You've got to crush that soul. Uh, having said that, obviously, you know, there are some celebrities, there are like anyone there in any industry, there's, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, there are, there, there are a lot of celebrities out there that do amazing, amazing work, um, that you never hear about because it's in the background. Obviously, you know, Keanu is just such an amazing, I've got, I've had the privilege of working with him, you know, on several films and he is just a great, great person. He is just a wonderful human being. Um, Hugh Jackman's another one. Hugh is just, if you were at a function, so I'm pretty sure Hugh would take out the trash, you know, um, and he works a lot with on the charity is um, Hugh Evans. Uh, he works with another charity um, that is doing amazing things for poverty. He, and Hugh has been supporting this, uh, the charity um, since its inception. Um, and that's doing amazing things for across the world for, for helping um, underprivileged youth and education and building schools and things like that. And doesn't really, you know, you don't hear about that in the tabloids or, or things like that. There are, there are a lot of people that do wonderful things out there um, that just, you know, being a, being an actor is just one part. What people forget is being an actor is just one part of a lot of those people's, you know, it's their job but they exist outside of that job. You know, for some people, there's a lot of young celebrities that get given a lot of things like fame, fortune. If I was 20 years old and, you know, back in those days, like I obviously chose a path, but um, if, if I was given millions and millions of dollars, I'd be doing stupid stuff too. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there going, hey, if, you know, I was famous and getting millions of dollars when I was 20, I'd be doing stupid stuff too. And I'd be in the tabloids. I'm pretty sure we all would be. Um, but, you know, I, I can't remember what actor said, like, you get about two years of being an idiot, being a bad boy before you've either got to change your ways or you kind of get run out of the industry or you get labeled as that idiot, you know. So some people make mistakes and they come back and others just, others you wouldn't expect that do amazing things for charities or just reach out and help people. I know there's some amazing footballers out there and, and actors that I work with that have, you know, college education funds that no one knows about. They're, they're, they're putting people through college. They have scholarships and things like that for local communities. And they're just, they're doing it because they care. They're doing it because they have the ability to do it. And, um, and then they, you know, but they do it quietly so that it just, because they don't want the, the extra fame fortune. It's not about that. It's just about helping people. Um, and you don't get to see a lot of that like in the tabloids or, or hear about that in the news. Cause it just doesn't, it doesn't sell papers. Like, you know? Yeah. No, uh, that's why, you know, I love having some of the people I had on so far. I mean, I just had a guy, Eric Stolhansky, who was in Super Troopers and Beer Fest. He's one of the, the writers mm -hmm. from that, a Broken yeah. Lizard crew. He actually is an amputee, but most people don't realize that. Um, and so mm -hmm. he does a lot of work with disabled Americans of, um, uh, disabled American veterans. Um, you know, and obviously other, other amputees and, uh, 
then Josh Brolin, I mean, he does amazing things. Um, he was a wildland firefighter for three years. People didn't realize that. He volunteered. John Travolta was on the show. He uh, donated a whole bunch of money to Ocala Fire Department here after he did Ladder 49. Um, and I, that's the thing. I love getting these people on, not because of the shiny object. Oh, you know, you're Thanos. But the fact that, as you said, they're human beings. And that's why I think John yeah. would be amazing. And, you know, Keanu and Tom and all these other people, if ever that came you know, a, a possibility down the road because I love that human element, you know. And then you're right, we don't get enough of these positive stories. Oh, you know, like yeah. Will Smith. I mean, that blew up when when uh, he lost his temper. And, you know, it's sad because the conversation there should have been about mental health. And it wasn't. It was yeah. just turned into a bunch of memes and ridiculed and then it was forgotten about. Yeah. That was a man at the end of his rope, you know, absolutely. Now, did, yeah. did Chris Rock deserve to be slapped? Absolutely not, I'm sure. But, you know, what a great opportunity to open the discussion to mental health, especially in men, and maybe, maybe even the impact of a, a broken relationship and what that can have on a spiral downwards and, God forbid, even, you know, addiction or suicide. But, no, mm. it was just ridiculed and then everyone moved on and it was tragic. Yeah, because that's clickbait. I mean, that's what sells. Like, the news cycle is changing every five minutes these days, so you've got to pick up a big, quite clickbaity title and... You don't, you know, it's like, oh, okay. So, but actually talking about the underlying factors there or, or anything or talking about why and, you know, like you look at, like even in this industry, um, what child actors are exposed to, you know, you're on set with adults and there's, you know, like particularly earlier days, like there's drugs, there's parties, there's late nights and things like that. They're, they're being exposed to environments that, you know, no kid really should. And everyone's feeding off them. You know, there's people thing that people don't realize, like uh, they may or may not about actors too. There's a whole machine behind them. So, you know, you've got agents and managers um, and lawyers and, and all these people are, are like attached to them, like leeches. And they're because these performers, like you, you saw Elvis, you know, they're, uh, well, if you didn't go and see it, good film, but um these people are just attached to the actors because they're the ones that are generating, generating money. They're the cash cow. So whatever happens, you've got to keep this person out there. You've got to keep this person going. You know, there's obviously in more recent times there's what's happening with Britney Spears and her conservatorship, but no one's talking about, okay, what did she go through as like when, when she was a young girl, like, you know, what, what was happening to her? Like a 15 year old, you know, what's, what's she being exposed to? What's she being told? Like people are just throwing her out on stage because she's making a, a lot of people a lot of money. And it's the same with actors. There, there's people behind them just pushing them because they're making a lot of money for a lot of people. But there's no talk about the mental health aspect of that, you know, until, hey, all of a sudden, you know, you know, 25 year old actors DUI and he's crashed his car in the middle of, you know, Hollywood Boulevard and like, Oh, look at that. Oh, another Hollywood kid goes off the, the rails. Like, well, you know, there's no, there's no safeguards in the industry for that. Really? Yeah. And I think, you know, you look at something I've talked about recently after having my eyes open is the impact of childhood trauma. And then you look mm. at, I mean, perfect example, someone like Corey Hayam. I wanted to be Corey Hayam when I watched The Lost Boys. And now he's dead. He overdosed, mm -hmm. you know, what, five years ago, whatever it was. That's heartbreaking. I mean, you go from, like you said, taking a child 
a child should be thinking about, you know, PE class and, you know, whatever educational classes inspire him and his, his dreams and everything. And now, you know, you're you're big for a moment and then you're cast aside and now you're on these where are they now shows and everyone's laughing at you. And, you know, I mean, it, it's it's horrendous. And you're the same with the athletes, same with, you know, a lot of musicians. Um, and yeah, it's that consumerism and, you know, the, the audience is so fickle. And I understand why tastes change, but we have to kind of rewrite that narrative that these people are disposable once once you've they've entertained you then they can be cast aside and you look for the new shiny object yeah it's it's like talking about societal norms like and you know like a lot of people listening to this uh, it's it's crazy once you've tasted that fame if you've got like hundreds of people yelling for your autograph and camera bulbs flashing and and things like that it's it's a crazy world. You you're going in private jets and you're going in limos and you're being taken into like you're getting hotels for free and you're getting brought into events for free and everyone's you know talking about your name. It's it's a crazy addictive like um, scenario. And if you're 15 years old and you're a kid actor or something like that and and you experience that it's like a drug. Like you want that in your system. Um, I've never, like, I haven't reached that. Like, you know, I've never kind of experienced that level of it or anything like that, but I've been around those people that have um, and talking to people that like experienced fame when they were younger and having to get over it. Those people that have successfully got over it and are still in the industry or as managers or as producers now or things like that, we'll talk about it and, and talk about, you know, to, to, like our society says that like, to be an actor is famous. Like we're, you know, the Kardashians or being famous for famous sake, not with any necessary talent, talent, like so many people, our whole society seems to be set up to idolize that kind of mentality that if you fall off that train, it's like, well, I, I peaked when I was 16. Like I'll, I'll never be that again. Like my, the high point of my life was when I was 16. You know, whereas obviously you can still be a very productive, like it's, I think it's taking some of that, the glamour of it it's just at the end of the day like being an actor is a job you know being you know a stunt coordinator is a job but being in this industry is a job like for most of us 99 percent of, of the people in the industry it's a job well that's what i see first responders struggle with because it's an identity as well and so if you have spent you know 10 20 30 years identifying as a firefighter and and not so much for law enforcement, sadly, but on the fire side, there's still this kind of facade of of heroism with what we do. I mean, it's a job and we all sign up for it and most of us absolutely love it. And we do. And many people will do it around the world for free. You know, they volunteer. Yeah, but you guys, you guys like run into burning buildings, you know, not knowing what's on the other side. Like my guys run into build, burning buildings and we've talked about it for like six weeks straight and there's contingencies and like people are wearing race suits and Nomex and everything like that. And even still it's like, Oh, okay. You know, Oh, hang on. That flame shouldn't be there. Shut it down. You know, you guys are really doing it for real. And like racing to, to burning buildings and racing to like car accidents. That's, that's kind of a hero. You know, that, that I'm pretty sure that's kind of the definition of a hero. <laughs> but it's, but it's what we're trained to do and it's what we're paid to do. You know what I mean? It's not, yep. I mean, it is, you, you have to have courage. I wouldn't say use the word hero, but you have to have courage for it. But, there's a very, very slippery slope to identifying as the firefighter and not the individual that became a firefighter. 
the the human mm-hmm. in the in the suit like you said it's still a job it's it's a profession it's a calling absolutely but it's still what we do it's not who we are and so when people transition out the other side injury fired retirement whatever it is you see that same struggle you know as you know i was i peaked when i was 16 well i peaked when i was a you know a vet uh, in the military i peaked when i was a firefighter or a law enforcement officer yeah. and that's not the case but sadly that that is still ego even though it's not you know ego maniacal so much it's still your ego going but i want to be cool i want to be seen as brave i want to be revered when that was really a, you know a, a fantasy the whole time you just did the job you tried to make the world a little better and then you you know you still were the husband and the and the father and the son and the brother and you know that never changed before the, the calling and it never changed after yeah i think that part of that is also like the jobs, the, those type of jobs, like you're a fireman and that's it, like the way you're trained for those jobs. Um, and it's, you know, in a way, you know, and I've seen it with a lot of, there's there's a fair few military veterans who stump people and everything like that. And talking to some of these guys, they struggled with their identity after they left because, you know, they were SEALs and they were Rangers. And, and obviously there's a lot of a lot of stuff that goes with that and, and identify it. It's being able to, it's almost like we talk about training like training for the job, but then it's training after the job. You almost like these particular jobs where I identify those, you you need to be almost trained out in, back into civilian life to to find out who you are beyond like being a fireman or a police officer or a paramedic or, or any of these like high high intensity jobs that run off adrenaline and run off these crazy scenarios. You need there needs to be some way to identify hobbies or identify a life outside of of those industries i know like you know so much of you you guys's job just once you're a, a firefighter you're a firefighter you're expected to be a firefighter for the, as long as you're wearing that uniform or um and there, but there's nothing about there's no exit strategy yeah no you're absolutely right i mean there really isn't and it's that's something that we need to do better and i love that idea of training for because one of the problems with the fire service and hear this from the military members and the, and the law enforcement side as well is you leave thinking, well, all I know how to do is cut people out of cars and, and go into burning buildings, which is absolute bullshit. You have this skill set where someone calls three numbers on the phone and you show up and mitigate whatever disaster is ahead. That's an incredible you know, skill set that you actually have. But it's how do you apply that or your time as a ranger or whatever it was into the new world but also carrying that same mission like this is this is going to make the world better this conversation that we're having now but i'm not in a fire engine you're not on set at the moment we're doing the same kind of mission but in a different way and i think that's the important takeaway is whatever took you into these professions you can still apply that same mission it's just going to look different now yeah absolutely like uh, i'm a big fan of like Jocko Willink and you know his book Extreme Ownership and I mean like I, what I love about his book is he takes the military scenario but then he also takes a, a business perspective of kind of a similar scenario and it's being able to identify like people that are dealing with high stress situations and having to like problem solve like being a firefighter is all about problem solving which is you know things like to a lesser stressful extent you know you're having to do in business every day or being able to take that management skill from being able to be a firefighter and deal with like constantly evolving scenarios and taking that into a business world or, or, you know, it looks slightly different. It's not a physical, like as a firefighter used to dealing with um, 
like physical situations as opposed to like an esoteric problematic you know theoretical space but you're still it's it's using that same scope of of problem solving or or management skills or adaptation that you would it's just identifying that it's a different scenario that it's in Absolutely. Well, just one thing I wanted to kind of put to you before we go to the closing questions. I know I said that a while ago now. Um, <laughs> but while we're talking about navigating, you know, I guess the, the more sinister side of the entertainment industry, when I look at Gary Oldman and, and Tom Hardy and, and Keanu as well, I, that's not who you see on the front page. It's not who you see at every party. It's not who you see drunk in limos or that kind of thing. So, with Keanu specifically, because I know you've worked with him a lot, how is he able to navigate the um, you know his private life, keeping away from all all of that? When you know, sadly, so many people succumb, as you said, to the bright lights and the paparazzi. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a different world. Like when Keanu was coming up through, I, I guess, like, and I'm you know, I'm very protective of the actors that I work with. I don't like talking about them much, um, just because there is that understanding and bond there and things like that. Um, and Keanu, like at his core, is a very quiet and private person. Um, and I think that, like, you also have like social media these days. Social media, everyone has a cell phone. Everyone's got a cell phone that records. Um, so, what it was like partying in the eighties and nineties in Hollywood is is very different to what it was. You know, in the you saw it change and kind of like as cell phones adapted and social media grew, and then you have your Back then, you had a skill set. Um, these days, we're seeing celebrities that are celebrities. I think there's a difference between a film star and a celebrity. So like a film star like your Keanu's or your Hugh Jackman's or anything like that, um, or actors, they have a skill set. They're, they're famous and they're a celebrity because they're, they have a skill set. Then you have your celebrities. Then you have like your Paris Hilton's or your Kardashian's that are just famous for being famous, you know, for... Um, you know, for whatever reason, there's people that are jumping on reality TV shows. They don't have a skill set. They're just dysfunctional human beings, but they become famous because, you know, of our of society's constant need to, you know, it, it's a voyeurism, really. You know, we, we want to see into other people's lives. Those lives aren't that great. Uh, let me tell you, uh, it's, you're not missing out on much. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, Back then, there was an understanding. Like, there are still professionals like Keanu and, and all those guys. There are still professionals. They'll go and you know have their drinks or anything like that. The and Keanu trained. You know, he's he's a great actor. Um, and there's a there's a professionalism. There's a strong professionalism there. There's a, in today's day and age. There's a lot of some actors that are just again. It's because they've got they they've got into acting because they're on TikTok or Instagram and they got a large social media following and all of a sudden the studio is going, they're putting their name into an algorithm and it's going, Oh, if we put this person in because they've got this strong following or they, there's this, they're instantly going to bring an audience to our show. Um, so instead of having to work for it, like, you know, your Leonardo DiCaprio's and, and all that, um, all these suddenly these people are being given shows and they don't necessarily how to deal with the fame and it leads to partying and leads to drinking and, and everything like that. And then you get, they're famous for being famous. So you've got to go out to these functions. You've got to go out. They have nothing else. Like the only thing that makes them, keeps them in the 
spotlight is by doing things, by being out in front of the celebrity. So, you know, agents are calling paparazzi and things like that. Hey, such and such is going to be at this venue tonight or such and such is getting off this plane. And that's why, that's why the, uh, the cameras there, like people getting off planes. It's because, uh, you know, a, a, an agent or a, um, the press that's working for the, the celebrities or is like, Hey, they're getting off this plane. They're going to this place tonight. Hey, they're going to be at this club, you know, um, or they're going to leave their house at this time. You should be like out, out, out at this restaurant here. Like they're going to be seen with this person. No, because it's, it's to get them in, in the papers. It's to get their, it's to make sure they're staying relevant and everything like that, because all they are famous for is for being famous. Whereas like your actors and your older school actors, they have a skill set. You know, they don't have to do that because they're good at what they do and you know, they, they do a movie and they'll do the celebrity they'll do the celebrity circuit to, to to promote the movie and then they can they can go away again because they're comfortable with who they are. Brilliant. Well thank you for that perspective. Just with the the stunt world, one more area that I, I want to make sure that we do before we close. With um, Olivia, and I saw with, uh, Dave, her husband, posting about this as well, and then we talked with, with Spencer about it. One thing as a stunt performer I see, I'm not a huge fan of um, uh, award ceremonies, award shows anyway, because especially mm-hmm. in the art world, it just seems completely counterintuitive. That, oh, this is the best painting. This is the best song. This is the best film. It's art. It's all about taste. But with that being said, those do exist. And we have so many films that are so action-based these days, and yet the stunt community is still not um, recognized by, for example, the Oscars. So what is your perspective of that whole conversation? I see. I was, I mean, for me as well, I try to shy away from like, you know, it, it took me a while to get me on this because I, I don't like, you know, talking about talking about it or and I try and shy away from like the spotlight. So for me, it was always about, like oh I I don't know if stunts needs a an award um, because we're just like we do a job you know um, and we do a really cool job but like to ask for recognition for it is kind of like eh. um, but having said that my kind of my thoughts have changed like we we do do a professional if 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 we're given out awards for the industry and everything like that stunts the industry has become so reliant on stunts and, and you look at all the big blockbuster shows, it's, they all rely on stunts for, to push the audience to people are going like, you know, your fast and furious and all those franchises. Um, that if we're handing out awards for costume and hair and makeup, um, and which rightly so every, they should be getting awards. Um, that yeah, then why aren't we handing out if we're handing out stuff awards for for stuff that's on camera? Then I think then stunts definitely needs a category. Like we, like I was saying before, we're we're the people that are actually putting our lives on the line for these shows, and you know people are really getting injured so that we can bring the best best of the movie forward to the audiences. Um, I absolutely think that we should that there should be an awards category for it. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's it's a kind of double edged sword because I mean the the whole nature mm. of awards to me is is kind of weird. I mean, yeah. in the fire service, you know, they 
some departments give out uh, you know citations unit citations and things like candy and this literally doesn't mm-hmm. mean anything and if you make a rescue as a firefighter well that's kind of what you were paid to do now if you're off duty in board shorts and flip-flops and you run to a burning building and pull a baby out yeah you should get kudos for that but you know if you're doing your job you're doing your job so that humility element shies me away from any sort of awards same in, in my profession yeah. but as i said if there is an environment where these exist and every other element of movie making is being recognized i agree with you completely in this world of star wars and avengers and all these things that completely rely on human beings flinging themselves from left and right um then if you're going to award everyone else then it's kind of a smack in the face to tell the stunt performers that they're not going to be recognized absolutely i think it was always like and it comes from a world where like for a long time, stunts were kind of seen as second-class citizens. They were, you know, it was like, a, bring the stunt guy in and do that stupid thing and then get out of here. You know, there was, in an area where everyone else is getting awards, you know, like obviously legitimately like visual effects gets an award, hair, makeup. There's a, there's a legitimacy that it adds to the department if it's getting an award too, you know, because everyone else is. There's, um, it's almost it's a snobbery that it doesn't you know and you know like second unit directors don't get you know there's that whole thing well it's the director's vision that's you know the stunts are there because of the director's vision well the, the, that applies to visual effects and applies to hair and makeup and costume and, and all the other departments that get awards so why wouldn't it apply to stunts you know why are we settle i don't know why that single thing is is being and uh is being you know, singled out. So I absolutely like, again, like you were saying, um, I do my job and I love my job and, you know, people within the industry, you know, they, we get recognition from like, Hey, a good job. Like someone, another coordinator going, Hey, that was a great job. So that movie that's, that's enough for me, like as a person, but as an industry, I think pushing us forward, um, professionalism and professionally, and then yeah, there should be some. If if we're giving out awards, then yeah, then stunts should definitely be getting an award. What it reminds me of, my last department was Walt Disney World, Florida's fire department. Yeah, and I saw the kind of tail end of this when I got there, but I'd heard you know many stories like you know from everyone of prior to I got there, especially someone would have a heart attack, a cardiac arrest in the park, and they would make the fire department like drag the person off stage so they wouldn't ruin the magic before they start life-saving interventions and that is where that kind of hierarchy is completely muddled because it doesn't matter about your damn pixie dust this person is dying we need to work on them right there and i saw people try and do that when i was on there and i (laughs) i let them know that wasn't going to happen and we were going to work this person right there but again that, that shows of that ridiculous kind of um like you said, hierarchy and that almost like egomaniacal element of, of um, you know, the, these are the important jobs and these aren't. And if you're telling a firefighter mm-hmm. paramedic to drag off a paying member, a paying visitor to a theme park so that you don't disrupt everyone else's guest experience by that person's selfish cardiac arrest, that's where you need to go, okay, we need to take a step back and kind of look at this whole thing. And that's kind of how I feel the stunt world was it started like you said with such snobbery back in the day and it's been allowed to continue until people say all right we need to change this this, this has been wrong for a long long time 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, and it's, it's embedded, embedded institutionalized thinking that, that gets us that way. Um, and for a time, you know, like, you know, you have to train to be a makeup artist. You have to train to be a seamstress to, to design these clothes and everything like that. And the stunt guys were just like, Hey, the just get Joe over there. He could fall off stuff. Um, but I think as stunts have become more professional as, and there's that swing from being the daredevil to being a professional athlete, which the, you have to be a professional athlete. You have to have the right mentality. You have to have your nutrition sorted out. You have to have your training regime sorted out because, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties now and I've been doing this for over 20 years and I can still perform and hit the ground. And i you know, I, I was meant to be, so I was on uh, John McFour last year and I was meant to be just coordinating, but you know, it came time, like there was a situation where someone went down and we needed, I had to jump in and all of a sudden I'm, I'm hitting the ground, you know, and I'm, I'm 43 years old and I'm still smacking the ground. My pad wasn't anywhere close. You know, I didn't even have a pad bag. I threw a costume on and I, I hit the ground without pads on, but it comes back to maintaining that level of training and maintaining that level of mental sharpness and, uh, and technique so that you can, when the time is called, you know, jump straight back in there and, and do it. I didn't necessarily want to, but you know, it's because <laughs> that ground does get harder, but um, it's been, it's knowing that today's stunt people, the world has changed and we've changed with it. And it's, it's, it's very professional these days. And there's a lot of training that goes into it. And, you know, there's a lot of science that goes into it. And yeah, we definitely, you know, we're beyond those days where it was just, you know, Joe Blow jumping off something because he had nothing better to do. Yeah. No, well, that's a great perspective as well because I'm 48 now and I'm still getting knocked to the ground every time I do the shows. <laughs> and I don't do the shows a huge amount. I do them every every few weeks or so. But, um, yeah. but you know, you might be a, a captain, a battalion chief and kind of rest on your laurels like, oh, I'll never have to go in. And then something like, you know, the Vegas shooting, 9-11, you know, the 7-7 in London happens. And no, you're the person that has to climb those stairs now or drag that person out. So I've always said this, you know, the, the, the fitness standard in the first responder profession should be held hard. Now, if you're never going to be out in the streets and you go to an administrative position and you're not, you know, what we call high risk, you're not be responding anymore, that's fine. Knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. Go go sit behind a desk. But if you're going to be on scene, at a fire, at a shooting, whatever it is, it doesn't matter how much time you got on and what bugles are on your shirt. You should be potentially able to be another member of that responding team if need be. Yeah. Well, it's leading by example as well. Like, that's the way I think about it. Like, yeah, I'm a coordinator. It doesn't give me the right to just be fat and lazy. I'm the first one into the office in the morning. Um, you know, when we have a community gym, I try to be the first one into that gym in the morning. Um, and I'm there warming up so that people, so you can lead by example and, and inspire people. So that you can be the guy that people look to and go like, okay, well, if the boss, the old guys, like, well, because I'm the old guy now, uh, if the old guys in there are doing it, then, hey, I can be, that's the standard. The standard is being set right there. Like you're looking up the chain to see where the standard is set. And if you're looking up the chain and the, the boss is doing nothing and the boss is fat and washed out and has lack standards, that trickles down. Like whether, whether you see it from a conscious level or a subconscious level, it, it trickles down. Absolutely, mate. Well, I'm going to switch some closing questions. We've been chatting for two hours already, and I want to be mindful of your time. <laughs> I keep saying, oh, and this one thing. Um, this one thing. Well, it's, it's just going to be an hour. It'll be a quick thing. <laughs> 
All right. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can pertain to our discussion today or completely, excuse me, be completely unrelated. You know what? Like um, the books, um, I'm big. I, I tried to read a lot. Uh, and I, you know, I, like I touched on uh, like Jocko Willing. Um, uh, I, I love his books, Extreme Ownership. I'm also like the the other thing I'm reading is a, a book by Ryan Holiday, which is uh, we didn't even touch on this, but um, I'm like big on stoicism and you know like the teaching of Marcus Aurelius and everything like that. There's a book uh, by Ryan Holiday called The Daily Stoic, which is like it's it's every day is a different uh, meditation on on wisdom and perse- uh, perseverance and just the art of living. Um, I got into that, especially when I got into the management and the stress kind of side of things, I was looking for something and discovered kind of stoicism and, uh, kind of started studying that still, still new to it, but, but I love that. And, um, you know, just, uh, obviously like, I'm just looking, I, I try to like jump out, like, um, the obstacle is the way another book on stoicism, um, sapiens, like the brief history of mankind is another is another fun book. I always try to obviously like make your bed is another fun book on, you know, and another super interesting book. Um, Thomas Erickson's like when I was talking about management, uh, Thomas Erickson's surrounded by idiots on, on different personality types and, and things like that. Anything that, you know, at the moment I'm big on self-development and, and management skills because that was an area that I saw that, you know, I can obviously, there are stressful situations and I realized like there were one or two times where I, I saw myself becoming that guy that yelled. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to revert to a management style that I saw, you know, and that I hated. So I'm going to actively make myself a better person and actively, actively consciously realize what I'm doing and the decisions that I'm making and, and try and understand why I'm making those decisions um, and then be a better person. Beautiful. Some amazing books. There's a lot of those have come up before and, and rightly so. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love that Re- identifying early when you realize that you're starting to deviate from the person that you want to be. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you're not taught, you're taught so many things in school and there are so many things you're not taught and there's, you're not taught really how to, function as an adult like in school i feel like it's like one of those trial and error things Uh, obviously there's there's business management courses and there's courses you can do but you know and especially in this industry it's not something that's worked on you know it's it's something you have to actively go out and and find and i've always had a thirst for knowledge and a quest for you know discovering things I think one of my nicknames is stugal because you know no matter where we go in the world i've always got facts about it because i'm there like researching and, and stuff like that so you know i did other than scuba steve i've got stugal <laughs> brilliant all right well obviously you work in this industry is there a film and or documentary that you love um oh so many films um right now obviously like the second top top gun maverick is just the perfect sequel you know you you can't not you know and you know i've I've had my love hate relationship with tom cruise everything i've never worked with him preface that way just as a as an audience member like you know just as his choices and films and things like that but you can't go past like i mean as a kid growing up always loved top gun and then top gun too 
you know, I just, just love that from a, from an action point of view and just a storytelling point of view. I mean, there is obviously amazing films that tell stories and things like that. Um, but, you know, it's just, it would, like, I'm going to say, like, I love one thing and someone's going to be like, that's garbage. It's a personal view. That's the great thing about, about art, like you were saying, and about storytelling. Find something that you love. Find a, it, you, no one else might love it. It might be the most obscure, like, French art film. And if you love it, you love it for whatever reason. Just embrace it and, and, and watch the films that you love and, you know, let other people watch the films that they love. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a, and if this than that, or you know, it, that's the great thing about art. It's such a such an individual perspective that you know, just let people be happy watching their what they're happy with, as long as they're not hurting anyone. You know. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, with with the award element, I mean, you think about some of the more obscure modern art. You know, you walk into a room and you go, "Oh, there's a ping pong ball on the floor," and someone else walks in and go, "Oh my god." That is the most incredible expression of Western racism I've ever seen. And like, what? Yeah. So how can you say one is right or one is wrong? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, um, it's one of those really interesting things. We all have different experiences. We all come from different, like different perspectives. So, you know, what's, what's right for one person is, is wrong for another. And what some people think is a stroke of genius, other people deride as, you know, insanity. It's, there's no clear defining, you know, like a, there is what's mainstream, like mainstream films that like everyone loves. Like people are going to say like Shawshank Redemption and Shawshank Redemption is a beautiful story, like storytelling wise, um, you know, and people love it. I love it. It's one of my favorite films. It's also one of the most common films, but like someone in the industry would be like, oh, you like Shawshank Redemption. It's your favorite film. That's so like, like cliche. It's like, well, you know, there's a snobbery involved there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Next question, is there a person or other people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Ooh, ooh, ooh. is there someone? Um, I think there are, yeah, like, I mean, you touched on it too. Like, Keanu has an amazing story of, you know, his life. Um, Hugh Jackman is an amazing, like, knowing these people to a certain extent. Like, I don't know them, know them. You know, I've, I've worked with them. They're their work associates and things like that. But um, there's so many, like you were saying, there is a perspective the audience sees, but then there's the human behind that. Uh, and the, there's, there's amazing, crazy stories of, you know, of love and of loss and of, of hardships and like behind these people that I get to work with. And uh, that the audience doesn't then necessarily get to see or understand. Like there's this whole thing of see, like you know, there's there's Hollywood, and you know, it's like liberal left Hollywood and everything. There's so many, it, like anything. There's it's it's a multitude of people across all spectrums, and people coming from so many vast different like areas of of life that it, it'll you know, it it's like any job. You know? Absolutely. Well, hopefully, because I, I heard Hugh Jackman actually did Tim Ferriss's t uh, podcast not too long ago, and it was incredible. Oh, okay. Because um, I think yeah. he um, Hugh actually listens to Tim's podcast and reads his books. But yeah, I mean, right. we'll see. You know, if, if the lines intersect one day. But I, mean, I think both of those are, are fascinating. And again, with Hugh, firstly, you talk about triple threat. That man is insane. Mm. Like whatever he's doing, singing, dancing, stunts, acting. You know, he's phenomenal. But but again, that 
altruistic element i think is so important and then like you say you 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 shatter that facade of masculinity like oh every man should be like john wick no john wick isn't real (laughs) he's a character and you know he's also completely toxic like if you think about john wick is a really bad guy yeah i mean they killed one dog i love my dog but i mean he's been killing people for about eight hours now (laughs) (laughs) killing people for months and months and months and months and months and like that's an angry individual that needs to talk to someone like they're talking about childhood trauma you know that's a that's an angry angry individual um in in a very toxic environment you know that it's don't get me wrong super fun to work on those movies you know you just get to but um like on a in a real like in a real sense that person if you saw that person on the news that's a really bad guy yeah exactly and it's it's funny because i've talked about this before like, don't get me wrong, I love action films, I do, and being a martial artist as well, you know, I mean, I, I love that kind of physicality, but when you look at that, in America, you know, I've talked about this many times, you know, if a, if a woman's ass crack is showing, they'll blur it out, whilst someone kills 400 Vietnamese people, and they leave all that in, you know what I mean, in the mm-hmm. Rambo movie. But then also you think about the horror movies, the real kind of, when it starts to get really dark with the whole kind of capture and torture element, when you take a step back and you go, wow, so Joe Schmo worked his ass off for nine hours in whatever job, construction, office, whatever, and then comes home and is like, I think I just want to unwind by watching a cabin full of teenagers murdered and mutilated before I go to bed. Like that that violence is kind of a, you know, a paradox, really, because yes, the revenge story is something that resonates deep with us, but there is a you know, another element, especially in the horror genre where you kind of, and I remember capturing myself when I was a teenager, taking a step back and going, why the fuck am I entertained by this again? Because this is actually gruesome. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, that touches on a whole other thing of the human psyche and, and, and storytelling and what, you know, you get out of storytelling. Um, you know, people don't, uh, it, it goes into the escapism of, of, of why we tell the story and, and the reality is people have been scared around campfires and since the beginning of time like you look at mythology and, and the stories that get told there um and you know obviously like a lot of those stories like with mythology and things like that were about about teaching a lesson and things like that and we've kind of gotten away with that it's more it's more escapism these days and it's more about you know, the, the scare or the shock or feeling something, you know, that I always, I got into films because I got into like plays and things like that because it allowed people to escape. My whole thing was like, if I can take people that work in an office and take them out of their environment and just put them in a new world and let them escape from their world for a while, let them escape their worries, whether it's financial worries or family worries or whatever stresses are going on work and, and let them experience something else, then, you know, that's, that's a really cool thing to do. Um, I think, you know, like, uh, you know, seeing for whatever reason, like horror films make a lot of money. People love being scared. You know, for whatever reason it is, people love that feeling of, of the scare or being scared or being frightened. And I don't know if it goes something, you know, like Bologna, like a lizard brain in there. There's some element of our primordial being that just, that is attracted to that. And you can see from, from films that like, that sell a lot of money. And from a, a film perspective, they're super cheap to make and they make a lot of money. So, you know, it's a, if a film can get a big, like, a hit like that, then, uh, like, at studio, then, you know, they're under a winner. 
Yeah, I saw, uh, I think, Halloween. It's called Halloween Ends, supposedly. And I don't know what number we're on now, but the next one will be like... Halloween Ends too. Yeah, Halloween Ends soon. We forgot to mention the last time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but with the storytelling, I think that's what makes this medium so powerful and you know if and when down the road if it ever happens you know some of some of the other names that i've I've talked about that happen to be musicians or actors you know hearing that story hearing that that roller coaster ride of trauma and grief and growth and all these things that humanize the actor would be would be amazing um so the next question then what do you do to decompress what do I do to decompress? Um, I mean, I have an amazing wife, an amazing house um, that I love going back to. I, it's so easy to get caught up in the craziness of this industry. I like to, to settle down. I like to go away camping, get back to nature, just um, just get out there. You know, I love just getting out, going on a road trip, taking a four-wheel drive and, and going out to where there is nothing. Um, uh we I love getting out to uh we have this spot by the lake. You know, just getting out of getting out of there, getting out of LA, getting out of away from the industry. Um and just just finding nature again and, and connecting to connecting to my family again. That for me that helps a lot. Like because there is like you work the crazy thing about it, you won't be working uh and then all of a sudden it's five, six months of 16 to 18 hour days um like six seven days a week sometimes and you're just constantly under that stress and the pump and it's from one action sequence to a next and you're living in a in an environment that's very high stress particularly you know as, as a coordinator because you're relying on different people to to get things right and there's always the possibility that you know an actor gets hurt even though we do our best to mitigate all those risks or that one of my team um gets hurt and you know, someone that I've asked to go in there and do something doesn't, you know, goes to hospital or gets injured or, or something like that. Um, so you're constantly living in a, in a high stress, like mentally. Um, and so for me, I just have to get away from it all. I just go somewhere where there's peace and quiet, where there's no industry, where I don't have to worry about that somewhere like simple, you know, somewhere fun, just somewhere I just let it all go. I like to meditate as well when I'm between jobs. Um, like when I'm at work, like I, I meditate every morning. Um, I just have that headspace app. And, you know, for me, I just, I do that and just do kind of like a guided meditation just to set me right and like visualize through the morning and just get it all. You know, for me, it helps center like being that calm in that storm, the, the breathing exercises and everything like that. If I find myself getting stressed out or I, I take that breath, I, you know, and then I just, I look around, make a call and it helps me, you know, with my, get, get through my day. Yeah, I swear by Headspace as well. I was actually, I had a hand, Andy Puddicum, the founder yeah. of that on the show um, a while oh, ago cool. now, but I actually want to try and get him on as a, as a sponsor because I think it is such an incredible tool, especially for people listening. You know, I mean, not yeah. only in the morning, but I found it super helpful. We come back from a call like two, three in the morning and it maybe is a call that really, did you know have the pucker factor and then you got to try and get some sleep again so i would put it you know obviously in my earphones in the dorm room and just kind of down regulate everything and get back to sleep so yeah phenomenal tool absolutely yeah i, I can't i 
can't uh, talk about it enough. Like Headspace, it, it's helped me um, because again, one of those things like I was never taught to meditate or anything like that, and I found it. I was like again trying to better myself and look for for something that would that would help me with my job and and deal with stress and things like that. Um, found that, and yeah, you know, I, I love it. Now, just one kind of aside for a second. I have watched, you know, obviously Josh, Josh Brolin and I became friends and I've watched him have to leave, you know, his, his, um, children and his wife to go on location and shoot. I think he's doing June again now. Um, and, you know, I see the kind of stress of being separated from your loved ones. How have you guys been able to navigate that, the distance between each of you? Cause you're both performers. Yeah. Well, on my second marriage, <laughs> I mean, that's part of being young and getting married and having to deal with that. I didn't deal with it well and we didn't talk about it and we grew apart and, you know, um, and that, you know, unfortunately, um, my wife's obviously an actress, um, uh, and we came in with an understanding, um, like our, one thing we'll always do. Like I will, will always have because the time zones are different. Like right now, she's back in the US, I'm here and the time zones are different. So I can't always wake up before she goes to bed, but we'll always have an email waiting for the person to, you know, to wake up to just whether it's a photo or a few words or something like it, it's important to me for her to know that I'm always thinking about her and she's my top priority. So we'll always be there for each other. Uh, we never... You know, it's funny talking to Hugh all those years ago. He's like, I never, you know, we never go more than two weeks without seeing each other. And, you know, that's like Hugh has Hugh money, so he can do that. Um, we, for us, it's like, um, and because she's sometimes on sets and, and doing stuff and, uh, it'll be, we try to keep it under a month. Uh, and we'll always make that effort. And then when not on a job, like obviously we're there together. Like I spend as much time as I can to the point where she's like, you know what, go on a job because <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> she's never, no, um, she's going to kill me for saying that one. Um, it, it's finding those moments, always making her know that, you know, with in today's day and age where there's FaceTime or there's, you know, Amazon or you can get something delivered. It's, it's sending flowers. It's, it's always finding those, that time and setting that time aside to talk and to communicate and, and see how each other's day is going and, and setting up very clear kind of understanding. I think mean, communication is, is absolutely key. Um, and still being able to talk and communicate over those distances. Well, it's really pertinent. So thank you for that perspective. Cause obviously some people listening, you know, are in the military and, and so they're deployed for months at a time. A lot of people listening, for example, the fire service, we're gone. 24 hours at a time if we're short staffed it might be longer the wildland community will be deployed for weeks um and then now my wife's in med school down near miami so we're 300 miles apart so i only see her on a on a good time every weekend usually more like every every couple of weeks and it's only for two days so you know we're kind of on that same thing as well so i think there's so many different dynamics that keep families apart especially in in the uniform profession so it's really good to hear that so thank you yeah yeah, it's uh today's day and age. It's just it's crazy. Like we have to go all over the place. Like so many, it's so many jobs are like that. Obviously, you know. Um, I think, but it's it's finding it's making that time. Sometimes you know, like you've done an eighteen hour day and you're 
dead tired and freezing cold and you know we don't get all the glamorous things so i'll be out on a lake like in the free like a frozen lake for you know 18 hours and you you just want to go to bed but it's taking that that moment to to call and just be like hey like yeah i'm i'm tired and it sucks but i'm i'm 100 here for you right now you know i'm this this is my time with setting aside so like no matter when it is it's just setting aside that moment of time that's that's theirs or yours so that you have that connection being able to connect you know and obviously like guys in the military don't get the they don't get the freedom to call you know if they're on deployment or something like that every day but um it's 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 having that moment to to be able to connect and just just be there and just be present for that for your partner for you know for your one of as funny an ex-military friend of mine was like yeah we got married she's my battle buddy you know, she is, I, I made that choice and I will do everything to be with her and, and protect her. And, you know, we go through life together. This is, this is the commitment I made. And I, I like that perspective. Like, you know, she is my, she's what, she's the person I've chosen to go through life with. And I've made that choice. Like I work, but work is just work. I don't identify as, as work, especially as I get older, like my commitment is to my family. Um, and so I'll do whatever it takes to, to keep, love it yeah i'm on my second marriage too and, and this one's uh you know no regrets in the first one i had a beautiful little boy yeah. but uh yeah you know i found i found my soulmate second time around well steve i it's been such an amazing conversation we've been all over the place if people yeah. listening want to follow you or or kind of find you online where are the best places oh you know what i'm hopeless like we go back to like uh uh, I'm on Instagram, but I barely post. Uh, I'm on, I'm kind of on Twitter. I have an account on Twitter, but I barely post. And I, I think I'm around on Facebook, although I don't know if I have a Facebook account anymore. I'm, I'm pretty hopeless with that. Uh, let me see. Let me pull up my, what am I? I'm, I think I'm just Stephen Dunleavy on Instagram, like Stephen with a PH, um, Dunleavy, D U N L E V Y. So that's probably the best place. Like if you want to, you know, follow me on that or anything like that. I apologize. I'm not the best poster. I'm not, I'm not big on like, you know, I'm like, who cares what I'm doing? But, um, I can relate. That's why I post yeah. other people's stuff. <laughs> 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 well, mate, it's been an amazing conversation. I can't believe it's, uh, God, actually more than 20 years, isn't it? It's like 21 yeah, it years. 2000, yeah. December 31st, 2000 was when I flew over. And when we flew over, when we got there, I spent, we flew out like seven, I think it was 7 p.m. when we landed, uh, like, you know, so five hours before midnight on the new year. And all of a sudden we're in a new country. And then they put us to two hours of orientation. Yep. And then we ran down to the, <laughs> the uh, Ferris wheel down in Osaka and saw the new year come in. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been an amazing conversation, mate. We've been all over the place. And this is what I, I said before, like the parallels between all these different professions there's so many intersection and we i think we see a lot of our occupations in, in a siloed way oh you know no one understands what it's like to be x or y and then you have these cross pollination conversations and you're like well shit you know yes they do i mean we're all having this human experience so i want to thank you so much we've been chatting for two and a half hours it's been an amazing wow. conversation but thank you so much for being generous so generous with your time today Absolutely, man. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad we uh, glad we finally got to catch up. Thank you for having me on. Mm -hmm.